Happy, happy, happy Saturday, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream show. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Uh, thank you all for joining us today. Uh, before we get started, next Saturday, we're bringing back uh, an audience favorite to talk about his new film, Infinite, out on June 10th via Paramount+. Plus. The other half uh, to our guest today, screenwriter Ian Shore, will be on uh, live from Hawaii at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and if you're not subscribed to this YouTube channel, according to the algorithm at least, 63% of you watching this are not, or don't follow us on Twitter or Facebook, you might consider doing so, as we've got a bunch of great interviews coming up uh, with lit managers, including Zach Zucker of Bellevue, uh, Chris Cook of Skyway, Dan Seco of Empirical Evidence is coming back on because our first one was cut off a little bit, uh, Chris Coggins of Heroes and Villains, and many, many more. So sub, follow if you're interested in that type of comment, uh, content, I should say. Uh, it's free, what do you have to lose? So do that, but today, We've got on our favorite, not one of our favorites, but our favorite guest, uh, who was the most oh, like viewed. Kevin, you said it. You said we're supposed to say it. No, but it's true. I mean, you are not just, I'm going to go on and complete my introduction. You don't need an introduction, but I'm going to give you one anyway. But you were, right. he is the most viewed and downloaded and requested guests on Scripts and Scribes ever by a long shot. I mean, he literally triple the views and, and downloads of anybody else. Um, so he's a lit manager, producer, the boss man at Bellevue. Uh, before that, he worked at Village Roadshow in Appian Way. He's Canadian, one of the coolest people in the biz, a true straight shooter. Um, oh, and he produced a small film with uh, client Ian Shore, who was on the live stream next Saturday, as I mentioned, called Infinite, which stars uh, a young up-and-coming actor named Mark Wahlberg uh, and directed by Antoine Fuqua. Whose birthday it is today, I guess. Well, a happy birthday, Mark Wahlberg. I'm sure he's watching. Um, Just turned 50. A young 50. Yeah, he doesn't look like that. I never would have thought. But it premieres this, this, this Thursday, June 10th, right, on Paramount+. Plus. He is John Zalzerny. Welcome back. I don't know how to turn the audio off on that, that craziness. Uh, but people are subscribing just for you, so that's Yay. that's great. Um, thanks for coming on, John. It's always great to have you. You are the superstar of Scripts and Scribes. You are our... Uh, our, our LeBron James, although I guess they didn't do that well in the playoffs this year. I'll take it. Yeah. Um, so, your film, the film you just, uh, your film's coming out June 10th. It is, finally. How yeah, exciting yeah. is that? It's exciting. It's 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 honestly kind of nerve-wracking. Yeah? Um, you know, because, you know, look, it's a project I've been working on for years and years and years. And, you know, obviously you're taking the market to the audience and you're, you know, curious about what the audience is going to think. There's also like this weird thing where, you know, as anyone who kind of knows much about the business is movies are primarily a director's medium, right? So like as a producer, um, I feel like, you know, it's like at the end of the day, it's, it's Antoine's movie. And like I helped originate it and develop it and was along for the ride, but it's really his movie. And so it's, you know, it, it's one of those things where I feel like, you know, I'll, it's Antoine's movie and I, and I'm merely here as a part of it. And so I'm very proud and excited about it. Um, but also as a reminder, especially when you're making $150 million movie that it, it, it's, the, the director is going to be the, the loudest voice in the room on this stuff, especially if someone as talented and experienced as Antoine. So um, it, it's exciting and, and interesting to be part of something, you know, so, so big. Yeah, and the trailer looks great. Um, we've been- yeah, it definitely, they definitely uh, cut some really good trailers, which, which was nice. And it's it's interesting because you've seen certain films like Soul and 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 Raya, I think, uh, the Dragon from uh, from Disney Pixar, coming direct to streaming, and then some will right. be in theaters for a week and then go to streaming. Um, it's 
it's COVID has really made it strange. Um, there haven't been well, a lot of. Like, we're having a premiere party, and the answer is no. What's that? You know, we, we're not having a premiere. Oh, you know? like, yeah, that's and, weird. Which is a bummer. Yeah, feel, I, that was something I was like, oh wow, I get to be the producer and have a big old premiere, just like the ones I went to when I was an assistant or an intern, you know. Um, and so, yeah, that's that that is to be honest, quite a disappointment. But you know, that is the situation. If that's your biggest disappointment, that's not you know, that's not much much of a much of a situation to be in you know yeah well i mean it'll be the first of of many hopefully uh big films you produce so you know after covid's over it'll it'll come back around it's just one of those things but yeah it is kind of a shame but um yeah so uh, you have been like you'd mentioned working with uh ian on infinite for a long long time and we've had Mm -hmm. multiple podcasts where you've been on and actually ian's been on as well um, talking about the process, so you guys should definitely check some of that. But for those who haven't heard, who don't know the story of of Infinite, maybe you can just talk a little bit about sort of how Infinite came about. And if you're watching this in the, in uh, the live stream and want to drop some questions in the chat, we'll get to them as soon as possible. So just drop them in the chat, and then we'll get to you in just a minute. But I wanted to, you know, give it up to to John to talk about infinite a little bit so sure. let us know how, yeah, yeah. how it came about i was actually like prepping a, a twitter thread kind of to go into the nitty-gritty of this less the process of the choices that were made in the script because i think ian can obviously obviously speak best to those mm. but just even the nitty-gritty of how like the deal came together and how it came on my radar because i think that's always interesting to people yeah um you know so obviously at that at the point when when we started working on infinite i had worked with ian a lot we had set up a bunch of projects around town um uh, capsule christo um we had a movie i think in i can't remember where it was called always watching that i had produced that ian had written so he was definitely my and it remains my closest collaborator in terms of you know who I've worked with the most. I think we've worked with over, developed over a dozen pieces of material together in various forms. Um, and so um, uh, a guy called Rafi Crone was introduced to me, and Rafi at the time was the assistant to Matt Reeves, the director, um, and has since gone on to be I think he's now VP over at his production company, um, Six in Idaho. And Rafi had been obsessed with this book called The Reincarnationist Papers which he'd read in this crazy story that I wish he was on Twitter to share. He had like been in like a, a bathroom in like Tibet or something. Right. I remember somewhere like really uh, exotic um, and had found this book and it's a self-published book. So like, it's kind of like shocking that you find a, a printed bound copy of it because those are a little bit more expensive than, you know, normal books. Um, and he found it and, and really was taken by it. In Tibet. Um, yeah. And was like, wow, this is, I mean, it was written in English, but, you no, know, right, right. was really taken by it. And it, and he had been trying in various iterations to get it going in Hollywood. Um, I think it was at Imagine for a minute and all this kind of stuff. Um, and no one quite saw the vision for it the way that he saw the vision for it. And, and he kind of been tub something it for a while. And he brought it to me because he thought Ian was the perfect writer to write it. And obviously I, I, you know, had a relationship with Ian, was working with, with represented Ian um and and he kind of told me the concept and i was like that sounds like a movie just the idea of what if you could reincarnate which that in itself is not a novel concept you know everyone understands reincarnation but what if you could use those skills from a past life like you are a kung fu master for example Mm -hmm. because you 
Bruce Lee in a previous life, or you're just were a badass kind of my master. Or, you know, in the case of our movie, um, you know, a little spoiler, I guess, you know, you can make samurai swords because you used to make samurai swords 200 years ago or something, you know? Um, and you could access those skill sets, which is weird to me that no one had ever done that, you know? They've done the versions where people are immortal, like Highlander or something, right. like, you know, or like the old guard or whatever, they just can't die. But reincarnation was not a, a, a thing that had been used in movies very often. The only movie I could really think was um, this um, Kenneth Branagh movie, uh, Dead Again, they did with Emma Thompson. Mm. Um, that was more like a psychological thriller. They did, they've done iterations with, of it in birth um, or played with it, certainly. Um, but they've never done an action movie. And that was, I was like, well, that's really interesting. Um, and so I read the book, obviously felt like there was a lot for a movie there. I, um, I don't know if you can get into this in the thread. So this is a little bonus for anyone paying attention on the stream. Um, you may notice that Todd Stein has a story credit on the movie. Um, like in the, in the first teaser, it says, you know, story by screen story by Todd Stein, screenplay by Ian Shore, mm. directed by Antoine Fuqua. So I've actually never met Todd Stein. Mm. Todd had done a treatment for Rafi before I or Ian were ever involved. Um, and be, due to that, we had to clear up the chain of title. I had to make sure that Todd, that Todd didn't kind of sue us for stealing any ideas. Not that we were intending to, but when you're adapting the same material, right. sometimes you come to the same conclusions. Todd was really cool. And we kind of had a legal agreement where if we ever sold the script, he would be included in the, um, uh, I think he, he got a certain payment for like a treatment if we sold it to a studio. And then he would also be included in the WGA um, arbitration process, hmm. um, which, you know, jumping to the end, yeah, it worked out well for him because when the arbitrators, he was writer, the first writer in, <coughs> other than the novel, obviously, um, which, you know, the novel didn't, the novel was just its own source material. And due to the fact that he had written this treatment, even though neither Ian nor I um, had like utilized it necessarily, and he was involved before we were involved, the arbitrators gave him story credit because they felt enough elements were in his treatment that were then uh, in Ian's script, you know, um, because especially because um, Rafi was just, was was um, was on both aspects. If Rafi had not been involved, then there would have been no clear communication between right. um, that treatment and how it got to us. If, but because Rafi was involved, he was like a bridge. Um, so we had to tie that element up, um, which took a little while. Um, and then I had to. So, but in the meantime, I had reached out to introduce by Rafi the author, Eric Mykrantz, um, and I, you know, honestly made a deal. I'm going to the exact specifics, but suffice to say, I did not spend a ton of money optioning it, not tens of thousands of dollars. It sometimes goes for options. To be fair, it was a self-published book, but, you know, it was, you know, I've seen lots of authors who were like, I want $20,000 for this, or I want this, or I want that. Um, but Eric was really cool, and he immediately understood the possibilities. Um, and the deal was very, pretty simple. It's like, not a lot of money up front, but if the movie was to get made, there would be a lot of money in uh, the movie and, and them purchasing the rights to, Ian, to, to Eric's book. Um, and obviously, Eric also understood if a movie got made of his, of his book, that would help kind of with book sales. And suffice to say, again, jumping to the end, um, now that Infinite's been made, he did get uh, found a publisher to take on his book and he's publishing a sequel book and all that kind of stuff. So if you like the movie, you should go check out his books. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of the, the underlying rights stuff, which was semi-complex. 
Um, and everyone involved is actually really cool, but it still takes a while to like get those agreements done and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, to be fair with Ian, we didn't necessarily want him to start writing until we knew that we had, when you're building a house, sorry, when you're writing a script that's based on pre-existing materials, um, like a novel or there's been previous writers, you really have to think of it as building a house on land. And if you don't own the, un, own the line underneath it, then the house isn't really worth anything because you can't do anything with the house, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so until we had the novel wrapped up and also the Todd Stein kind of what a chain of title issue, um, we didn't, didn't super duper engage in developing the project. Um, and then anyways, once that was wrapped up, um, Ian and I did start developing it. Um, you know, there's some tricky things um, where, you know, you have to figure out how do you kill someone who basically can't die, you know? Um, and what is kind of like the big MacGuffin, if you will, the big end of the world thing? Um, who are these characters? What are they doing? You know, there was some definitely a lot of stuff we took from Eric's book, but Eric's book was a much more philosophical, um, internal book, kind of more of a like setting the stage for everything. And we wanted to jump in kind of into the movie aspect. Um, so yeah, so we developed it for took a little while. Ian was, I think, staffed on a TV show and busy doing this, that, and the other thing. Um, and also it was hard to crack all these kind of big worldly kind of concepts. Um, but <clears throat> eventually we did uh, wrap. And then as Ian kind of indicated on Twitter, I had to like yell at him sometimes, not really, but be like, hey man, like, come on, I swear to God, people really want the script. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of movie that gets made. It is important. Um, and so we did kind of wrap it up in 2017. Um, and then we took it to the marketplace. And I'm going to go into detail on this in my thread. But, you know, we, we, we slipped it to Mark Varadian over at Lorenzo Bonaventura's company um, on a Friday. Uh, we, and then we didn't take it to anyone else on a, until a Monday. Um, Mark really liked it. He gave it to Liz Raposo, um, who's a high up executive at Paramount over the weekend. I worked with Liz um, at CIA. What's that? I worked with Liz at CIA. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so she really liked it. And then on, I think she was still reading it or getting into it on Monday. On Monday, we went to um, every single other producer, not every single other, but a bunch of other producers in town. On Tuesday, uh, the people who really liked it, which was a lot of people were like, great, we like this. And so we started doing this thing where we gave out territories to people and we knew Paramount was interested. And so we were like, hey, make us, if you're interested, make us an offer, right? Because very soon we're gonna get other offer, hopefully get other offers. And, and so we, we we did this thing where you kind of give up ter give territories. So you decide which producer gets which place. Mm -hmm. So if, if someone has a deal at Fox or someone has a deal at Disney or someone has a deal at Warner Brothers, you say, okay, well, you can take it into Warner Brothers. So different producers got different territories, as it were, different buyers. Anyways, like <clears throat> an hour or two after we'd kind of given territories, Paramount came back to us um, and made a preemptive offer preemptive in the sense that no one else would make an offer and they wanted to take it off the table mm -hmm. before anyone else could make an offer. And they put a clock on the offer. I want to say like six o'clock or seven o'clock or something. Whereas we didn't make, if we didn't respond by that point, or I think it was basically kind of take it or leave it semi, um, then like this deal is kaput. Right. Um, and so we kind of, I think we countered, I think we, and then like kind of went back and discussed and when we got the numbers to a place where we were felt good about it, then we had, I had to call and we were like, yay, celebration. Everyone was happy. We, you know, made a really big deal. Um, but then myself and Charlie, although I think a lot of me, Charlie being Ian's agent, had to call up all the um, the people we'd given territories to and be like, guess what? It's already sold. And they were like some pretty annoyed people, <laughs> which is always the job of an agent or, or a manager 
whenever um, something sells is like, I have to go tell all the other people who wanted to buy it that they don't get it. So it's always a little bit tempered with a slight unpleasantness the day of. Right. Um, I had to do that last week or two weeks ago and that wasn't fun either. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, that was kind of the, it's the process that kind of resulted in, in from kind of inception of idea, at least as I was exposed to it, all the way to selling it to Paramount. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. I mean, uh, it was it's also interesting to hear it from your perspective because I know Ian's talked about it on the podcast from his perspective, and you're definitely had a lot of the business aspect of it covered. So that's yeah, awesome. that's definitely something I can speak to yeah. more than Ian can speak to. I mean, look, we I was involved in those discussions with Ian. Oh, sure, we were very closely. But Ian is is the writer, and so he's the guy really in the weeds making those choices. I'm usually either seeing the benefit of those choices mm-hmm. or we're talking through, Hey, what about this? Or what about that? You know, right. sometimes I have, you know, a good idea or a solution or, or this like that, um, which is why we work well together. But, you know, Ian's really the guy kind of cutting the path through the forest. It's my job to clear the legal path mm-hmm. and to kind of set the stage for the business minutia as right. it were, machinations as it were. Uh, just as a suggestion, are you guys, I don't know, what Paramount Plus's release schedule is. I know it just says June 10th. Uh, you guys mm. should do a, like a, a live tweet stream something when it goes live, whenever that... Maybe. If it's a meet, if it's a midnight thing. I don't know how that works. For Maybe, me. yeah. We, I, and I'm not sure what the situation is. I think Ian's in Hawaii, so it's a little trickier. That's true. Um, that is true. So I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out kind of what the situation is. You know, I think, yeah, we'll figure out what, what we want to do. Yeah. But thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, so we've got comments and questions and stuff so let's see here uh let's start off at the beginning um sarah tuff says thank you uh as always so thank you for tuning in sarah um ian martin hi john how you doing so (laughs) there you go um ash laser says thank you both so much sarah tuft mentions the running zombie and subscribe enemy. yeah i don't know what that is that's just part of uh obs i'm gonna try to change it but i don't know <coughs> yet greg harris says john is the best he is the best you are correct greg um ash laser has the first real question here that says most important question for emerging writers ever whose idea was to have the motorcycle jump onto the plane wing ha <laughs> You know, I was going back and looking at the script because mm-hmm. I, I couldn't remember what it was in the spec script. And in the spec script, which you could probably read online because it was in the blacklist, so it kind of means it's floating out there. And the spec script, it is driving a Porsche Spider uh, on, you know, basically at the plane, as it were. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I, the, the motorcycle onto the plane, um, honestly, like that, I don't know that you know, there've been, a, there were a lot of writers in and out of the process, mm. I know, as a producer, especially the producer who reverts and developed it at a certain point, Lorenzo Bonaventura, who, you know, who is the big producer on the project, who produced Transformers, used to run Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. He's the one who got Antoine Fuqua on the movie because he greenlit Training Day back in the day when he ran Warner Brothers. Also produced Four Brothers, which starred Mark Wahlberg as well, which Antoine directed and did all the Transformers with Mark and also did Deepwater Horizon with Mark. I think Patriot's Day. I'm not sure if they did Patriot's Day together. Um, but, uh, and then also he, you know, so anyways, um, but at a certain point, Antoine and Lorenzo was kind of like, I got this. And so at that point I was less involved um, and there've been a, a few other writers. So the answer is, I don't really know, but if I had to guess, probably Antoine's um, because at the end of the day, that was kind of cool stunt shit. That's the kind mm-hmm. of stuff that Antoine does. Right. But that is like, I think one of the better, one of the best shots in the movie is that fucking awesomeness. So I'm super, it certainly was something that Ian had put in there 
um, you know, jumping from a super awesome vehicle onto the plane. Um, but uh, probably a, a motorcycle makes a bit more sense than a Porsche Spider in retrospect. <laughs> right. Um, and conveniently, we have Ian Shore, the screenwriter, on next weekend, next Saturday. So we'll have to ask him too, see if he can recollect if it was Antoine who did it as well. Um, Kapil Gautwai, uh hey Kapil, uh, says, Hi John, as someone who's graduating soon and possibly moving to New York, do you have any advice for independent filmmakers and how to create a strong skeleton crew to do independent projects? No. <laughs> that's, I, I mean, I went to school in, in, in New York, I went to NYU, but once I graduated, I moved to Los Angeles and uh, you know, the independent movie scene is not one that I personally know very well. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe there's like networking groups and things like that. And maybe you work, I'm, I suspect that if you work on one movie, you'll get to know a lot of people through that. And there's probably a network of, of people. Um, but to be honest with you on a professional level, that's not, even if you ask me in Los Angeles, like, what would I, how would I get into like making movies in Los Angeles on an independent level? I don't honestly know. My, my focus is really, um, you know, development um working with writers um and getting them writers to a lot of times studio buyers or into t onto tv shows but even to independent financiers you know or, or getting into stuff but you know definitely making movies in probably at least a half a million dollars but million dollar budget and upwards so the kind of more indie scene um i that's not a, a scene that i am familiar with uh, as a former film school guy myself, I would say hit up NYU, you know, film school there, make some connections there. You could even volunteer to work on some of their projects and they'll work on your kind of thing. Uh, there's the Craigslist and the Reddits, um, although they don't tend to be as appreciative of people posting free work, but it can work, I guess. Um, depending on, on what you're it's offering. It's probably going to be you working on other people's stuff for free. Right, and then making those connections and, and networking. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and then film festivals and things like that. If you work at film yeah. festivals or developing a writing group, you know, getting people together in that sense, um, rather than just a, hey, come work on my thing for free, you know, building those relationships with other filmmakers by helping on their projects, and then they'll tend to help on yours. That seems to be uh, what always happens. It's usually people who mean film school or like I worked on their short film and then right. they worked on my short film. That right. Kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, Noah Keeling says, Zach recently had a mini thread about questions uh, about querying itself and how writers should focus more on what to query. What sort of scripts, log lines grab you? What ones turn you off? Um, you know, it's hard to say on a, like a, 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 a it's like be like, what kind of movies do you like? What kind of movies do you not like? You're like, well, I like good ones. and I don't like bad ones. <clears throat> right. I would say, you know, when the, I, I don't really... The things that, that that I get excited about are the things that that are seem exciting to me, and I don't really have like a a formula for it per se, um, other than it feels different and exciting. You know, like when I got the logline for Headhunter, I was like, "Well, shit, I've never read a script with a cannibal. That's really interesting. That's different." You know, um, I would say the ones that you know, quote unquote, turn me off would be the ones that feel really familiar. Hmm. I was joking with like someone who was like a used to run or still ran one of the Disney fellowships or one of the, one of the fellowship programs. And they were joking about how many pilots they'd read. Mm -hmm. There were about someone from LA or New York and mm -hmm. they move back home and then they get back into the family restaurant or the like, uh, I don't know, hotel business or the, or whatever that business family business is. And it's full of wacky characters and they just learn to like, love life again, you know? Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, that is a, probably the most common pilot I have ever seen in my entire life 
is person from LA or New York moves back home and, you know, and rediscovers the simple life via their family business. Mm. So that's probably the one that I don't like. I'm also not the world's hugest fan of road trip movies. Um, they feel episodic generally to me. Obviously, there are some good road trip movies out there in the world. Um, and if one was interesting enough, I would love, you know, Little Miss Sunshine is a road trip movie, obviously. So, like, that's really cool and interesting and different. Um, but it does feel, I think, sometimes that they can be somewhat episodic. So those are the, those are the ones that, you know, or like, you know, I don't have dislike Westerns. I quite like Western movies, but Westerns are quite hard to sell. But if someone had an amazing logline for a Western, I personally wouldn't have a problem reading it. But I would also be like, this is going to be a difficult sell. Right, right. Carm uh, asked, as a newer screenwriter, what accomplishments should I have under my belt before querying for representation? One amazing screenplay. That's it. And, but you have to be really honest and be like, and this is hard. This is the most amazing screenplay I've ever read, read written. This is a, this is really, this is good enough that I want to go and reach out to everyone and really be like, this is the best. And, and, you know, I mean, look, sometimes the best script you, the first script you write is not the best screenplay of all time, you know, like, most I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, my wife wrote the first screenplay she ever wrote was Blonde Ambition, which taught the blacklist. So, it worked out okay for her, but for the rest of us human beings, it's not necessarily that 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 is the case. Um, but yeah, you all you need is one screenplay. You don't need to have been in five million festivals. You don't need any bronze in the Beverly Hills screenplay competition or whatever. Um, all you need is to have one really truly great script, you know. But I think you have to be really honest and unmerciful about it. like, is this script the one that I want to put my energy towards and make and get everyone else to read? Is this the thing you know that I really want to lead with? And if it is, then great. Mm -hmm. uh, Megan G says, "Thanks for doing this, John. I've heard that there's understandably a production backlog from COVID. How does that affect your work? Are you continuing to look for new clients?" I still continue to look for new clients. Absolutely. I'm always reading and checking in new people, but she's hundred percent right. Um, and I was just talking to a friend. I know people want to believe that things are back and they're normal again, but they're not. Um, what happened? And it's pretty simple when you think about it is the pandemic happened last year and that pretty much shut down production almost entirely for a while. And then it got back up. But it got it back up with like COVID costs of mm. extraordinary amounts. Um, sometimes like a you know a tenth of the budget or more, you know. Um, so like let's say if a ten million dollar movie, one million of that is going to COVID costs, and that's a lot, you know. Um, and so that made it a lot harder to get as many things made. Um, and now I don't know if people are aware, but lumber is extremely expensive. Um, three times as much. And so that makes it more expensive to build sets and do things like that. So that's added to the, to the production costs. Plus it's still, you know, hard to get things made. And so there's this really feeling right now in the, in the, in the especially in the film market um, that you want to come with a movie that has uh, a great script that's already written a great director and maybe even one or two great actors, you know, which is, which we call packaging. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is, the directors who mean anything and the actors who mean anything, they've spent the last year or so during the pandemic developing their own material. So they have their own things that they want to work on. And so everyone is super backlogged and trying to get things made. Um, and it's just really, really hard. And I really don't think this backlog will entirely ease until probably 2023 in a real sense. Um, and so it's really hard to there. Things are still selling. Things are still happening. 
but it's very hard um, for stuff. And I know on the TV side, I was talking to someone and they were, you know, someone who was working on a, a pretty high profile TV show that just got canceled. And in part it was because COVID costs and production costs had gone up like a million dollars an episode. Wow. Like a million dollars an episode. And this was a show that made like 20 episodes a year, or 15 episodes a year or something, you know? Wow. So that's an increase of $15 million or $20 million. Mm. Um, and so it's just really, really hard out there. And there was, there was a really big demand for content, which is great. But the flip side of that is due to the pandemic and, you know, things are hard, you know, man, look, I think we're lucky, you know, if I was in the music business and I represented an artist, that's, there haven't yeah, really been know. real concerts and that there's, there's nothing, right? Mm -hmm. At least in the film and TV business, people are working steadily. TV has been really good about, you know, getting people hired for staffing. That's been good um, on my <laughs> end, certainly. Um, and people still get hired on feature stuff, but it, it is a very, it is, a, it is quite difficult out there. It's not as hard as it was last year, obviously, sure. but it's not, it, things didn't just snap back like a, like a, an elastic band. And I think as a COVID restrictions start to be relaxed and released, I think that will make things easier, but you're still going to have this backlog of things. So the answer is I'm still assigning new clients. I'm still working with new people, but in terms of taking material out in terms of selling stuff, honestly, on some of the stuff we're like, man, we should maybe sit on this or try to, put it all together first or like, cause you know, you don't want to throw some, once it's been, once it's out, it's out, you know, you can't take it back again. Right. Right. Um, and she adds on to her question. Megan does. Um, she's looking to change representation and wondering if this is a good time or if it'd be better to wait a few months to reach out after the backlog clears a bit. Although you did mention that you don't think it's going to clear until 2022, 2023. So I think if people are looking for new clients, they're looking for new clients. If they're not looking for new clients, they're not looking for, I don't think that anything's going to change three months from now. And anyone tells you, anyone who tells you it'll change three months from now, very likely three months from now will still have some some different excuse. You know, in my in my experience, people are either looking for new clients or people are always either always looking for new clients mm -hmm. or not looking for new clients. Like I have a call, I have a call, an agent I work with who's really really high profile, um, and he like his. I was talking to him. He's like, look, it's not that I'm not taking on new clients. I'm just really picky now. You know, and so it doesn't mean he won't take on new people, but it does mean he'll only take on new people who really feel he's really, really excited about working with, mm. you know, so the bar is higher than it ever has been. Right. right. <laughs> and the same is true for me, by the way, the, the bar is higher than it has ever happened. But that's also because I'm more established in my career and things like that. You know? Sure. Uh, let's see here. Um Short Kill 72 says there's a movie from 1975 called The Reincarnation of Peter Proud based on the book by Max Ehrlich. Maybe that's referring to, um, you know, the whole reincarnation thing. Um, and actually, there was one. It was a thriller. It was, I think, done. Uh, it was called Mr. Stitch. Uh, it was done by. Um, uh, what's his name? Um, who did Killing Zoe? Uh Oh, um, Roger Avery. Roger Avery. Yeah, and it was basically about um, like someone who had been put together, and they had been different body parts <laughs> of different dead bodies and put together, and he Sounds had like memories of yeah, kind of like that, and he had memories of all these different people. But it was he didn't have the powers; he just had the memories, and it made him sort of schizophrenic. And I've heard the name reincarnation of Peter Proud. I've never actually, I actually don't know what the right. movie's about. So, 
let's see here. Um, the next question. Sarit Zadok says, 11-year-old protagonist for a drama series. Is this a problem for current buyers to have a child carry a show? If it's a kid's show, no. If it's an adult show, yeah, probably. I mean, like, you have to look at the marketplace and people ask me these questions. And I'm like, well, is there a TV show out there where an 11-year-old carries a show? I mean, I guess Stranger Things, but I think they were like 13 in that one. Right. Um, and that, to be argued, could, was geared towards teens, you know? Mm. Uh, the answer is probably yes, honestly. Okay. Uh, it's harder, but it's not impossible. But you, if you do something like that, it's like if you write a Western, right? If you right. write a Western, will it ever get made? Will it ever sell? I would not say never, but I would say because people generally are not that interested in Westerns, the bar is really high. It's higher than if it was like a horror movie or a thriller movie or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if you have an 11 year old protagonist, can your show sell? Can it get made? Yeah, possibly. But it's going to be harder than the protagonist was a 28 year old person, you know, in part because I mean, think of this just as a practical matter. Um, if you know anything about working production, 11 year olds due to child labor laws can only work like six hours a day or four hours a day or like certain number of hours a day. So therefore you don't have as much shooting day as you would normally. I mean, we learned this on Eli, my move that I, I, I produced that had a 13 year old boy, it's protagonist, you know, or my client, I don't, wasn't involved in producing it because I didn't produce a cobweb, my client, Chris Devlin's movie, you know, if you have a lead actor who is under 18, child labor laws apply mm -hmm. therefore your shooting days are shorter right you know? so that's just a practical matter never mind the fact that you know sometimes executives feel like oh adults aren't going to watch a show where a child is the main character right right for better or for worse whether they're right or not um tori simonson says i wrote three fantasy scripts for television i recognize fantasy is not the most popular television genre and i'm not sure how i can get an agent when my focus is on writing for a fantasy series sorry can you re uh, sorry my screen went blacked out yeah. for a second no, repeat that just, question uh, i wrote three fantasy scripts for television i recognize fantasy is not the most popular television genre and i'm not sure how i can get an agent when my focus is on writing for a fantasy series now i don't know if that means they wrote three episodes of the same show that they want to develop or three separate pilots all in the same genre i mean if you want to write i mean look there are fantasy shows the witcher is a very very popular show hmm. i mean here's the quite bet thing i would bet you though look we have a client who's up for staffing on the witcher and we sent over a grounded thriller pilot you know like i think the thing is if you only want to write on fantasy shows i think you may be setting a very difficult bar for yourself i bet if you went to the witcher and you looked at the people who had written on that show very few of them only wrote fantasy right. shows you know, I think I, I remember looking at it and seeing that I think Best Schwartz, who I think created The Witcher, um, had like worked on like a bunch of other shows before, like procedurals and things like that. You know, mm -hmm. so I think if you're like I write fantasy shows and I only want to work on fantasy shows, I think you might be making it tough for yourself. Right. And developing fantasy, your own project is difficult because most of them are done by IP. You know, if there's no IP backing Absolutely. it because the budgets are so big, it's hard. It's very rare. Yeah. yeah. Um. Let's see here. Uh, Gigaman6 says, question for John. If you're an up-and-coming screenwriter, but also a novelist, does it make sense to write both the novel and screenplay for your story to sell as a package? Is that even possible? No. Well, think about it. Does, does Warner Brothers make novels? I mean, they might have a division that's completely a different set of people. Mm -hmm. 
doesn't no one I've never heard of anyone buying the book and the movie what you've heard of is someone selling the book and then eventually they sell the movie rights right right that that does happen uh I think it would be enough here's what I would say to be a novelist or to be a screenwriter are both incredibly different paths sorry difficult paths is what I meant to say but they involve very different people mm-hmm. If you want to do one or the other, I would try to get do one or the other and focus on getting success in one of those fields before moving into the other field. You know, like Scott Frank writes books, William Goldman writes books, but they had success in one or the other field. Goldman had success in novel writing before he moved into screenwriting. Scott Frank had success in uh, screenwriting before he moved into novel writing. I would try to have success in one and focus on that one before moving into the other. I think trying to do both at the same time um, is incredibly hard. Yeah, and I think writers have to ask themselves the question, what is it their end goal is? If it's to be a screenwriter, don't think that writing a novel version of it because that's going to make it faster and easier is going to help because you're just wait, sp- spreading your energy thin. Doing Not necessarily, that, no. Yeah, and it, it won't necessarily. Trying to, trying to, I mean, go go to go be on some novel chats or whatever, and like they're not like so easy over No, me. right. right. Money's just falling from the skies. Right. And publishing is like that. Right. Hard enough over there, you know? So that's what I would say. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, let's see here. Um, Pamela Hugie says, thanks for hosting this. I'm a comedy writer seeking representation and just started sending cold query emails to managers. What advice do you have to grab a potential manager's attention? Uh, I mean, look, I have a whole thread. If you go to my Twitter page uh, and, and follow me so I can get to 10,000. Um, <laughs> uh, I have a whole thing that's linked on Kevin's website, um, which is, a, is all this is a PDF of all my threads. And probably the most popular one in there is my query letter thread where I break down beat by beat how to do a query letter. Um, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, that's, I look at that. That'll tell you specifically beat by beat what to say. The very simple answer is keep it as unadorned as possible. You know, hi, you know, my, your name, log line, you know, who you, a little bit about you and that's it. Don't make it a five page thing. Don't attach a file. I would also be really mindful about who you're reaching out to mm-hmm. and not just be emailing random people. I would be like, Oh, I'm very calculated in who I reach out to, but th- there's a query letter thread on there. And, and, you know, you know, that has a, that I spent a lot of time on that and that has a lot more details in it than I'm, that I'm, I'll be remembering off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. So read the query letter thread um, in, in the pinned tweet on my, on my Twitter page hosted on Kevin's website. Um, but go to that would be really helpful. Yeah. Go to Twitter at John Zalzerny. So and it's right there. Um, Jim Worst says, you've got a screenplay with a specific actor in mind to star, but you don't have rep- a representative. How realistic is it to reach out directly to the actor's manager? I mean, highly unlikely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would guess that like 99% of the time it doesn't work. Right. And here's the thing, having worked at CIA and been in that position, getting being on the receiving end of that, I have to say that any actor who is bankable, is going to get you money. Uh, that that representation, especially because you don't have a track record, is going to ask for a hard offer, meaning a contractually. Or if they, or if they don't have a representative, they're not even taking their, the, 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 the the script, right? What's that? They, they don't have, if they don't have if you don't if it's not coming from a, like me or like an or like another agent or a producer. You're not even going to forget hard offer. You're not even going to get there necessarily. Every once in a while, <clears throat> maybe. 
you know, right. depending on if the log line is super exciting or whatever, or if you're a friend of a friend. But they're going to be like, yeah, we'll do money in the bank. Do right. Million dollars in the exactly. Bank. They're not just going to read it and pass. Because every is actor it- who's bankable has a list of scripts that they have offers for, offers for and or piled up on their desk, their own projects they want to work on, that they're not just going to filter through thousands of uh, people, you know, uh, The thing that people don't think weird. about very often and this is so crazy to me because I was talking to my friend of mine who's a producer. Mm-hmm. And as much as I love this guy and he's had movies made, he really doesn't think like, oh, how's him? He's like, these actors and these directors, they just don't want to do my movies. I'm like, well, you're, the budget for your movie is less than a million dollars, right? He's like, yeah, but like, you know, it's good script. And I'm like, yeah, but the agents, they get 10% of whatever their clients do. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to, their client's a director and they, they're, if it's a million dollar movie, their directing fee is probably like, 80 grand maybe you know maybe uh maybe a hundred let's call it a, well no actually it's probably not a hundred if it's a million dollar budget um let's call it 80 grand mm-hmm. and so then they're like oh great my client's gonna work on a movie for, for a like year. two, year, yeah, for, two years forget a yeah. year more like two years for and i'll get eight thousand dollars out of it <laughs> and 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 like what or they could be working on a studio movie that's like a 13 million dollar budget yeah mm-hmm. i'm gonna go i'm gonna I'm going to hold out for the, for the, you know, you know, there are exceptions, but like, so the question, if you have this script, why is someone going to read it other than like, I don't know, it's really good. It's like, well, yeah, but there's like a lot of good screenplays, you know? Um, And so I think you have to think about like, instead of going directly to like whoever your actor is, if your script's so good that it could get the attention of the actor, well, then it'll probably get the attention of a producer and honestly a representative. Right. Right. If you can't get a, a manager or an agent to sign on, I'm not saying that means your script is bad, but it does mean that there's some kind of disconnect between what you see in it and what people who work in the industry are seeing in it. Right. You know, if no one else can see it, then that's a, it's a little weird. Then what makes you think that the, by the way, it's not going to go straight to the actor. Like, oh, here we go. We'll get this to Daniel Day-Lewis immediately. Right. It's going to go through their their agent and their manager first. If the agent and the manager are seeing are not seeing it the way that the producers or the agents or you know the managers aren't, then like, it's never going to get to that person. Mm-hmm. So, you mean- to, the business is not like it's not like they're not they're looking to pass. You know, passing requires less work for them. Mm-hmm. And not even passing on the script, passing on your query to read that script. Yeah, absolutely, because you... You're just not going to get a response. Yeah, it's tough. It's incredibly difficult, uh, especially... You assemble a team to make your thing undeniable, you know? Right. right. Like, we didn't go to Mark Wahlberg when we just had the script. They went to Mark Wahlberg when it was set up at Paramount and Lawrence of Bonaventura, who he'd worked with, like, six times before. It was like, hey, bud, you should do this movie. Right. And Antoine Fuqua was on the movie. Right. That's yeah, when it got Mark Wahlberg's attention. I mean, as you were mentioning before, you would ask, well, if it just comes straight from a person that does not a representative or something, will I would we read it? Probably not. In fact, no, most likely. I'm like one of the only people in town who reads this stuff, you know? Yeah, no, I mean. Even then I have like rules like don't send an attached file. Don't right. send me five pages of material, blah, 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 you know? Um, like, but nobody, I don't know, very few other people read query emails. Yeah, the one exception is if you have someone else in the industry, not necessarily a manager or an executive, but somebody in the industry who says this is good or they're attached as a producer, you know, some then maybe, maybe. But then again, that's getting someone else absolutely to, make, to do it. Absolutely. And if it's just you, then yeah. you build build your team. Build the build team script. Right. The team around it, you know? Right. With Ian, it was like we had with Infinite, it was like, okay, it was me. 
And then I obviously had some relationships. And then it was Ian's agents at UTA, Charlie Ferrar and Emerson Davis. Mm-hmm. So they had relationships. Sure. And then they went to their relationship. And their relationship said, okay, we're on board. Let's get Paramount on board. Okay, Paramount's on board. Okay, let's get a director on board. Okay, we got a director on board. And so you're building a team around the script. All of them say, hey, this is good. Mm-hmm. And so by the time it gets to someone, there's like 10 people who've already said, yes, this is good. Right. And so it's right. coming in. People are like, well, shit, 10 people said good. This is good. It must be good. Right. Or certainly right. it must be something I take seriously. One thing that I don't think people look at enough, which I would suggest, uh, it, it, it's not easy to do, but a lot of casting directors want to be producers. And if you can get a casting director, if you can, I'm not saying it's easy because it's not. If you can get to a casting director, if you can get them to read it, and try to get them as your producer. They have a ton of actor contacts. This is true. They could slip I've seen this. Yeah, I've seen it happen. It's very difficult. Um, and not well, you all have a relationship with that casting director. Right. It's not going to happen if you don't know them in some way, right. like, necessarily. Right, so. absolutely. But that's something to consider. If, if you have a friend who knows a casting director, his friend, you know, whatever. If there's some sort of connection there, you can definitely look into that. It's about building currency. Yeah, absolutely. Within the industry. Having people in the industry saying, this is a good script. You should pay attention to the script. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's see here. Uh, we already read Jim's comment. Uh, Ash Laser asks again, regarding COVID changes, when would you advise moving to LA? Is Paramount for an emerging feature writer? Or is it still possible to attain your interest remotely via Zoom? Still, yeah. I think it's still possible to do it remotely. Um, I mean, look, for feature writers, I would say... You don't 100% need to live in LA. Um, let's say this is normal times. Let's say it's 2022 or 2023. I'd be like, okay, look, if you're in LA, it's always better. But if you're a feature writer, you can live outside. In fact, I have my client Chris Devlin who lives in New York. You know, my client Chris Parizo doesn't live in LA. I, the writer of Headhunter doesn't live in LA. Um, but I would say you need to come to LA at least two to three times a year uh, on your own on your own dime. You know. Um, and be here and meet people in person. At the moment, it doesn't matter. I think it won't entirely matter until the next year. Mm-hmm. I think people will be completely fine to do Zooms until next year. And then they'll probably still be okay doing Zooms, but it's just always going to be better if you could do it in person. Right. And, but for TV, um, I guess you could still be remote right now because we're doing Zoom rooms and stuff like that. But I would see writers' rooms coming back in the next two to three months. Yeah. In, in earnest. If you're a TV writer, you've got to be in LA. Yeah. Maybe not right now, but as a general rule, you have to be in LA. Absolutely. Because like I've had clients have a staffing meeting on a Friday and the room started on a Monday. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Uh, let's see here. Christopher Eaton says, what is your best advice for writers with a large portfolio of work to get exposure other than an eight on the blacklist? Well, large portfolio is kind of a moot point, you know, I would pick one script and really make that like your um, thing that you're out there on. Um, I mean, look, in terms of online services, mm-hmm. uh, the blacklist, obviously, you, you already know that script pipeline, I'm a huge fan of. Uh, I just signed someone recently through them and we're having a lot of success. Brian T. Arnold. Um, I'm excited when the news comes out about what's going on with his script, some really cool stuff. Um, and he's a phenomenal writer and really lucky to be working with him. And Matt Mistich put us together. And I've had a lot of other people through Script Pipeline. Um, Coverfly. Um, I don't know if I've ever signed anyone through Coverfly, but I've definitely tried to sign people via Coverfly. I think Coverfly is quite good. Um, you know, and then like script competitions, the Austin Film Festival, the Nichols. Um, 
final draft, big break, things like that, you know, those are the, those are the things. And then, you know, if you have any relationships, try to get people in the industry to read your stuff, you know? Yeah. So that, that's it. But I wouldn't, I would, if you have a large portfolio, I don't care if you have one script, or you have 20 scripts, you've got to focus just on one mm-hmm. and be to have that one, whatever your best one is. I would drive me crazy is when people send me like 20 log lines, you know, I'm like, okay also i have to be really honest when you're like i've written 50 screenplays and this is 51 i'm like well fuck what happened with the other 50 right like were they all terrible right like what's going on here like it's a i don't say it to be like this is my first screenplay i've ever written that's fine but when people try to like blow me away by how many scripts they've written it's kind of like you met somebody like yeah you're my 50th boyfriend or girlfriend you're like (laughs) okay that's a little weird you know right that's a that's a red flag I, right there it's a little just a little weird you know yeah. you're like you've dated you've seriously dated right seriously not gone out on 50 dates with 50 different no people. i mean i've gone i went on like probably 50 dates right. with you know people or whatever but i didn't have my serious my number of serious girlfriends is five yeah four i don't know you know before i met my wife you right. know like that's a little weird to me you're like I, people like try to blow me away by how many they're like i write screenplays in three weeks well, are they any good? You know, right. And even then, if if they are good and you've written ten, why did, haven't any of them gotten any traction? Uh, and and maybe it's because you didn't send them out, but it it looks really sketchy too. You don't have to brag about it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If it's true, then you don't have to mention it because that's not necessarily. Not all. It's important yeah. is the one script. Yeah. Yeah. That you want to like push forward. Right. Uh, let's see here. Um, Celluloid Simple says, "Hey John, maybe each producer is different depending on genre, but where do you like to find new talent, screenwriters, and directors?" Well, you mentioned a few just now. You, yeah, I mean, like I mentioned, those those places. I, I still look at my query emails. I found a lot of people last year through query emails, like four or five clients. Um, yeah, those places, contests, you know, through other people. Um, you know, my client, my, my colleague, Zach Zucker, will be on in a couple of weeks. Um, he is more focused on, on young directors than I am. He'll like check out like film festivals and Vimeo.com and like stuff like that. I'm not the world's biggest short film guy. It's not what I dig on that much. I, I signed someone last year who did this amazing short film. And I was like, man, I don't like short films, but I like this, you mm-hmm. know, I'm more writer oriented, but my colleague Zach and Kate are much more director oriented than I am. Um, you know, with key exceptions. More often than not, I come from a writing place and then those writers become directors. Mm. Um, so, yeah. <coughs> um, but yeah, that's that's it, you know. I, yeah, those are the places. Let's see here. Um, Michael J. Manch- Manson says, does John have any experience working with Blumhouse and what are his thoughts on their payment model for writers would they be the best place to sell a horror spec to if that screenplay has the cl- clear potential to do well at the box office? I've never worked at Blumhouse. I don't know what you're talking about in terms of their payment model for writers. Whatever, I don't know what that means. Uh, I mean, like you make a deal, you make a deal. You right. know, I mean, I think if you're if that's a funny phrase. A clear potential to do well at the box office. Well, one would hope all things have that 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 potential. You know, um, that's why people buy them. They don't buy them for you know their collection. Um, the best buyer is the one you get. You know, sure, absolutely. I, I, I what I would tell you is like, 
if you had 20 people going for you and you're like, I have to choose between them, then, then you can be more picky. If, if Blum's the only place that wants to buy it, you'll take whatever terms they are offering. You know, um, I don't know Blum's uh, situation and, and their payment model. I've never collaborated. I've never done a movie with Blum. I've actually, I've had a client, a client get hired. I actually, I have had clients get hired to write for them and they were, but they were paid by Universal. So, hmm. you know, Blum doesn't tend to buy things. Blum tends to uh, have, have, they have a deal at Universal and Universal, if Blum says they want to buy it, then Universal, if Universal's business affair does it, hmm. so. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Um, Ash Laser's back. It says, second most important question for emerging screenwriters. Do you plan on cutting your hair after COVID? Ah. Uh, he said, it looks great. Mine is crazy long now also. Uh, I know. I, guess you, you I got a haircut a little while ago, like a month ago or something. Um, my wife likes it. What can I say? Hey. I, and, I, and I look very different from my, uh, my, my suit profile photo that I used to have. Right. And, and we'll go back to eventually. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think oh. so. People seem to like it. Yeah. I was on the, I was on with the head of a, of a studio Wednesday mm-hmm. and he was like, look at John, his long hair. And I'm like, Oh, all right. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. It's, it's distinctive. Uh, let's see. Justin B says, do you manage specific genre writers over other genres? I mean, I guess, do you have a preference? That's what he's asking. No, I, I don't do a lot of comedy. Like broad comedy, I would say. Like Brian T. Arnold, his comedy is more in the vein of like, I wouldn't even say Charlie Kaufman because Charlie Kaufman has kind of a certain um, cynicism to it that that Brian does not have. Mm-hmm. But I would say Eternal Sunshine Spotless Mind um, is very good comp for the kind of comedy or Palm Springs that Brian does. And I love that, you know. But I, I don't think I would be the right fit for like a Fairly Brothers type person, mm-hmm. you know, although I, I enjoy watching those movies. Um but beyond that, I do everything. Like my wife writes a lot of music biopics. Chris Devlin writes horror scripts for the most part, as does David Churchurillo. Ian Shore writes horror, thriller, action, sci-fi. You know, I you know I have clients who write straight drama. I'm developing a bio, like a lot of biopics right now. So I don't think the answer is. I think people might have certain tendencies, but rare rare is the person who's like, I just don't do that. You know, right, right. I, I rep good writers. You know, personally. Right. Yeah. And other than companies like Three Arts, who does comedy, very rarely does a management company not do a broad range of things because you want to keep your clients working. Like Circle of Confusion is no more for doing genre stuff. Three Arts, as you pointed out, does comedy. I would say Mosaic does comedy more, you know. Right. Um, But yeah, generally, you you, you, you know, you it's like the agencies aren't known for like being a certain thing. Right. They are known for representing good writers, the right. end. You know? yeah. So that's it. People always ask me as if like, you know, and I get the question. I actually quite get it, but right. I just like good writing. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Tuft says, what keeps you going? The score when the pieces come together, uh, discovering new writers, the work itself. How do you still get the same thrill you got in the beginning when stakes are now higher? Um, that's a good question. Honestly, the stakes feel not lower, but the, it's not as stressful as it was when I was first starting because I didn't have any clients. Like, hey, my life's pretty damn good. You know, I have a lot of really great clients. I own my own company. Um, so I don't have like a boss yelling at me or anything. Um, uh, you know, I my clients are successful. My wife, is, is who is one of my clients, is quite successful. Um, I have big movies coming out, you know. 
I actually feel like the stakes are not not maybe not lower now, but I feel like I've proved I've had been number one on the blacklist twice. Hmm. I, I when I used to sign people, like I would email them, I would email them, be like, hey, like here's all the stuff I've done. Let me send you some examples of some scripts that I've worked on, so you know that I'm for real, right? I don't have to do that anymore, which mm-hmm. is nice. Um, but I think her overall question is a very valid one, which is what is exciting. Um, and you know, I think. I'm probably, well, I guess, you know, we haven't done it in a couple of years, but like, I still love, and probably as long, at least for a long time, we'll continue to go to like USC's Pitch Fest, hmm. where all their students are pitching people. And I'm probably going to be one of the more senior people there in terms of age and, and maybe in terms of uh, seniority, right? Like there's not a lot of heads of companies who are going to those places. And I'm definitely probably the most senior person in town who reads query emails, you know? Um, but I love finding new writers. It's a big kick for me. You know, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. So that's probably the most exciting. What I like most in this, in this job is finding a really talented writer and exposing them to the town. So like Brian T. Arnold, who I signed a few months ago, had this great script and we took it out and, and people really loved it. People really responded to it. And that felt really gratis, gratifying, you know, um, that was really, really cool. So it's nice to find someone, believe in their talent and then be honest with you, see your, your taste validated by a great response in the town and helping them kind of launch their career. So I really dig that and and, and probably will for the rest of my, my career. Mm-hmm. You know, that's always really, really nice. And that's why I still do these things that, you know, it's funny. I was talking to another manager colleague yesterday and he likes, I, there's, a, we sometimes call comeback projects, which are some people who are like, I don't know, in their middle, I'm middle-aged, but middle-aged, you know, and maybe had some success in their twenties or their early thirties and then didn't have any success for like a good 10 to 15 years or whatever. And I'm talking like success to the level of like, got a movie made or decently prominent. Everyone in town at a certain level knows their name. I'm not talking like you sold one screenplay once, but like, it wasn't like to a studio or something. I'm talking like prominent people, Mm -hmm. prominent people. And maybe the last five to 10 years haven't gone as well as they would have hoped um and a rehabilitation you know and like those people i still always i'll read them and meet them but for me someone's a little trickier because they usually what they really want is just to be taken out again they don't want to change their behavior patterns Mm. they don't want to think about story or how to do things or their process in a different way they just want a new manager to do what the old manager did before they dropped them or they went their separate ways and for me, what I love to do is to find someone new and expose them. I don't be like, hey, I know you read this person five years ago, but I, I swear to God, this thing's good. And the other thing wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, um, unless they're like, hey, like, I want to change the way I'm doing business. And we really, we really click, you know, um, I mean, Ian was slightly a new a known quantity when I started working with him. But, you know, we were able to kind of find our own way of working together, you know. And so for me, I love finding new writers. Um, that's the thing that really excites me. And by the way, new writers doesn't necessarily mean like straight out of college. Like, again, someone like Brian had had a previous manager and a previous agent, you know. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I we actually just had dinner a couple nights ago um, and I didn't ask his age. But, you know, he's not he didn't just graduate college, you know, he's had done some stuff, had some, you know, other, other stuff before. And he probably not as, as old as I am, but, uh, but, you know, he's had some ups and some downs, you know? So I don't mean that to say when people hear me say new writers, I don't mean like I, that only means people in their twenties or something necessarily. What I mean is new to the people who are reading them, mm-hmm. you know, you've never read this writer before, or you 
don't really re- remember reading them or something like that. Right, right. I want to be the person who gives them the marketing push so everyone in town knows their name. Gotcha. You know? Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, let's see here. Uh, Jack Cross says, hello, John and Kevin. John, I've heard some reps say that they do not focus on staffing writers, but are more interested in generating new content. Uh, what's your position on staffing? Is, is it something in your wheelhouse? Yeah, I don't understand that. That's weird. Why would you not be interested in staffing? Staffing's fucking amazing. Uh, <laughs> staffing's great, you right. know? I don't understand that. I, I would love for those people to explain that to me because staffing's awesome. Staffing is the goal for TV writers early on in your career, you know? If it's an achievable goal and it makes sense. For feature writers, obviously, that's a but whole But they can't get a producer credit on staffing, I guess, maybe, for some of these. What are you talking about? Oh, oh, they can't? Oh, yeah. I guess that's true. Yeah. Um, that would be, like, a weird scam. Um, I mean, look, I suspect what's going on with those people is just total suspicion. I don't know who you're describing. But what Kevin's referring to is managers out there who are like, hey, I want to find new material that I can sell. Mm-hmm. Then I attach myself as a producer to the material or executive producer in the case of TV. Right. And then I can make money off your thing. Here's the thing that's really weird to me, though. The chances of selling a newbie writer's pilot are really low. It's really, really, really hard. I've done it and we as a company have done it. But I think we've done it like less than a handful of times because mm-hmm. it's really hard to do because generally people want to get by pilots from established writers right you know so like i don't get so then you're like trawling through a lot of different pilots and also like that way like you're you're looking for the home run you know for me what i what i try to do with my clients is develop an amazing script that we if we could sell as a pilot that'd be amazing you know but we use that to get them in a tv agent then we use that to get them in the staffing mix and get them staffed you know mm-hmm. so like i found this amazing client studio malhotra off the blacklist she wrote a script called worth got her an agent got her staffed on a, a tv show called tiny pretty things honestly really fast within six months you know um and now she is writing on fbi international and her pilot is has a great amount of amazing people involved in it and she's working on a new thing that she's he's adapting for a huge studio thing like yeah. so there's been like lots of successes like that or my client Roxanne Peridides who I signed out of USC we developed a pilot together that got her an agent that got her Mr. Robot and then on Marvel's Secret Invasion now she's on FBI International and so you know all these kind of things that's kind of the goal and you can keep the pilot going and doing its own thing but it takes a long time for that to go and staffing's just something I want to use the pilot to get you staffed on a show you know, you pay, and when you do that, also the thing that's happening is when you're staffed. If I, now that when we take um, Worth or we take Roxanne's pilots that we're like, you know, we're like, hey, this is from a person who's producer level writer on this show, and they're like, oh, well, that's much better than a person who's never worked before. You right. know, that oh, people signed off on her. She had multiple jobs that got her to being a producer level because mm-hmm. she had like three jobs that got her there, right? And usually it's like someone she actually worked quite a long time on those shows, so she increased her like her rankings. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, you want to, you then you're coming in with more experience and people view that as a positive. So I don't get those people. They don't make any sense to me. They must be running some kind of weird, I don't want to call it a scam, but some weird hustle that I don't understand. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think some of them, it's, it's, they look at staffing, maybe they don't have as many contacts because they don't have as many, TV writer clients maybe people? and they're just looking yeah I don't know 
And I've heard it too, but very rarely, but I've heard it once in a while. And it's, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't as a long term business plan. No. I mean, most people, it's the opposite. They're obsessed with staffing and to the detriment of, um, to the detriment of development. Right. Especially because once they're going, if they're a good writer and they're a good person, you want to keep it going. To, they tend to keep it going and it's less, not that much work on your part. Uh, you know, the, the workload lessons. I love so developing you get, you get a lot more incoming clients, calls. But that's not true for everybody. Yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, let's see here. Um, Greg Hare, um, let's see. If a writer queries a rep with a log line and the rep doesn't respond, how does the writer know if it was the log line that needs to be reworked and try again or if it was the idea they didn't like? What's the difference? Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I, I guess some people aren't confident about their log line, but inherently the idea could work if the log line were rewritten, maybe. I, here's what I'll say. I've seen good logs, I've seen bad log lines, mm-hmm. but the I, even the bad log line tends to convey the idea, the underlying idea. I see. Gotcha. Um, it was the basic concept behind your log line. Uh, let's see. Ash Laser again says, uh, what is your best advice right now with COVID budget increase, backlog, etc. as an emerging writer seeking a lit rep? Great script, obviously, but any unique specifics, budget, genre, living in LA, etc. Uh, again, no. thank you both so much for your transparency and insight. No, I mean, like living in LA doesn't matter right now. Right. Budget doesn't really matter necessarily. If it's a good script, it's a good script, you know? Mm. Here's what people think like, oh, well, this is, I get this all the time. Oh, it can be done really cheaply. Well, that's fine. But like, if it's not a good script, it doesn't, like, if your script is a B and it costs a hundred million dollars or it costs like $5 million, it's still a B. It doesn't, you don't, if it only costs $5 million, I don't raise it up to a B plus. Mm -hmm. It's still like, because here's the thing. Okay. So let's say you make a movie for $5 million, right? Make a movie for $5 million. And then you have to go and you want to, it's a theatrical release, theoretically, you're going to spend $15 million on the marketing spend, right? So then it actually can end up being like 20 million. So then here's another thing. So the movie costs $20 million. Then it goes out theatrically. If it makes $40 million, the studio actually only makes 20 because you only recoup 50% of anything that comes back theatrically. Mm -hmm. So your $5 million movie has to make $40 million worldwide for the studio to just break even on it. Mm -hmm. So that's why like the low budget thing is like a kind of a moot point because marketing spend, I mean, like you can up and down it, but like there's kind of a minimum spend. So Steven Soderbergh tried this on his movie Unsane and Logan Lucky. He was experimenting with a different marketing spend and a more internet based marketing spend and doing the marketing spend only a week before the release date mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, he's been very open about this. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. It didn't work. You have to have a certain minimum spend and you have to begin the campaign and a certain number of days before the movie comes out and people for a theatrical uh, release. Right. And uh, creatives, especially, but people in general wonder why there's so many remakes and so much IP turned into stuff. It's because there's a built-in audience, a built-in name recognition. People feel there is certainly. Yeah. 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 Um, there's also this idea that like, well, someone liked it once. So right. someone must like it a second time. I'm right? not saying it's a, it's a great idea in, in all cases. I'm just saying that just I think marketing wise, I think, yeah, that's why it is the way it is. Um, let's see here. Short kill 72 says are hard, co- are hard copies of screenplays sent anymore or is everything submitted by PDF now? PDF. Yeah. The end. Yeah. When I first came to this business, man, hard copies were everything. Uh-huh. There were no PDFs. And man, there were so many manager, sorry, messenger services and printing services. And 
Oh my God. I am so glad that I only became a manager in 2015 when PDS were the norm. Because mm-hmm. if I'd become a manager in like, I don't know, 2010 when there were still PDS, was 2010 were they still? I guess they're still must've been. But if I'd been a manager in the early 2000s and the 2000s, man, you would have been spending so much money on, on mailing and printing and like, I mean, yeah. But no, it's all PDF now, which is great. Yeah. I mean, I don't work, I haven't worked at CA in a long time. But I remember the uh, agent trainees having to drive all over town to deliver scripts to not just production companies, to actors clients, and whatever. Yeah, yeah clients. I, I wonder if how that's – because I'm sure actors still like paper scripts, and I'm sure they can print it themselves. It's but, them. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. It saves those Especially stuff. for like a more – something like – yeah, it's always just – yeah. I don't – I know. I've never – I haven't seen it print. I know some people do it, which I don't get. But I know some people still do it. But, uh, but yeah, it, I – other than maybe at a table read, I can't remember the last time I saw a picture. <laughs> right. Yeah, with iPads and everything. Uh, um, let's see here. Uh, um, Ash asks again, would you respond to a query showcasing writing potential even if you didn't think it had market potential? Like, oh, this writer sounds interesting. I'd see what else they might have. No. Okay. Um, Just because there's nothing like what could you do be like really funny or something? Like, I don't know. I, I don't think it's... It's, it's never, I'll put it like this, it's never happened. Hmm. Okay. Um, Jack Cross, if a writer you signed is not generating new content and not working on something, how long would they stay on your roster? Honestly, there are people on my roster, my roster, mm-hmm. who I haven't gotten material from in a couple of years. But I didn't drop them because, like, what's the point? Right. right. Like what I mean, there's no cost meet. Look, if I worked at a bigger company and they, they would like, let me see all your clients. And I'd be like, well, and they're like, well, this person, you but no one, it doesn't mean anything. I'm not going to lose anything as a result of having them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe they're working on the secret greatest screenplay of all time. You know, right. The only people I drop are people who want a lot out of me. Like they want to be, if the, if that person who didn't generate material wasn't doing anything, was always like, I want more general meetings, get me more meetings, put me up for this OWA. What's going on with this? You know, mm-hmm. um, then, they, then I'd be like, yeah, this isn't really working because you're asking a lot and, but you're not giving a lot. Right. That would be a problem. But if I haven't heard from them and they're not doing it, then like, I don't see a point in dropping them per se. Um, look, I have had people come back from me after like, you haven't heard from them in like two years and like, I want to get into the new idea business. And in that case, sometimes I'm like, hey, like, you know, I don't have the, I don't have the bandwidth to develop as intensely with you as I, as I do with some of my clients who have made me more money and more success or are earlier, you know, um, I'm happy to read your stuff, but I'm not going to be super duper engaged on it because you're not super duper engaged in your career anymore. But if you want me to read something, I will hundred percent read it, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's it. I try to be transparent with people, but I, I I don't have, I I know people at like the bigger firms, they have to justify their clients all the time. Um, But even they did, like, it's like, you just put them, I don't know. You just don't list them. Like who cares? Right. I'm there's no ranking system or something for me. Right. Uh, Ross G says, what is your current video game of choice? It's still Fortnite, man. It's still Fortnite. Fortnite. Hmm. Okay. It's still Fortnite. I still play it. Me and Noah Abslin, uh, who's pretty prominent on Twitter, um, has another podcast. Uh, can I? Yeah, it's a good, it, means. Yeah, yeah, Screaming into the Hollywood Abyss, which is quite good. And they just had um, Melissa London Hilfers on there. It's really awesome. Um, they, It's really about, it all talks about failure. Um, and, and people describing all their failures. So funny, uh, Noah's co-host, he's British, has a very dry sense of me. He goes, Sean, what's it like being a failure? 
I'm like, oh, that's, I don't really think of myself that way, but thank you. Um, but uh, what are your failures? What are you doing from all the times you failed? That was a failure. <laughs> um, but I played a lot with Noah. Um, although I just finished the Miles Morales game uh, for PlayStation 5, um, which is kind of a Spider-Man kind of spin-off game, which was really, really good. Mm-hmm. And I've got um, the Avengers game, although I hear that's not very good. I've got a couple Star Wars games, a Star Wars Rogue Squadron, a Star Wars The Force Order or something. I don't know. but And I'm very excited for Horizon New Dawn or whatever the heck it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dramatic Rooster asked, how many query letters do you go through on a monthly basis? I get like 50 a day, so. Yeah. Yeah. Times 30. Um, A lot. And honestly, and here's something. Mm -hmm. I auto-delete them if there's a file attached. Okay. As you go, zoop, Mm auto-delete. Auto-delete. Is there anything else that makes you auto-delete? Well, like auto delete is like literally I can see it in my email inbox on my phone or in my Gmail. And if there's a file attached, delete, like without even looking at it. Yeah. There's nothing else that makes me auto delete. Um, I don't super duper love it when it's like, hello. And you can tell it's a form letter that you're, right. or, or this is the best part is when they like put this in the two thing, they put like 500 other companes. <laughs> I've always been getting for a, for a reply thing to be like, no, thank you. And like, we all like are emailing each other or whatever. <laughs> But it hasn't happened. But like that's like I'm like, oh wow, the personal the personal touch right. really like really gets me. Um what about the ones but, that are walls of text? Like six paragraph long. Yeah, I mean that is another thing, honestly. That I will actually look at them and then I'll delete them. Will be like if you pitch more than one screenplay, if you're if it is like, hello, my name is Bill, and here's the entire plot of my novel. And like, I mean by the way, I don't want novels or actors. That's an auto delete. Hello, I'm an actor, and here are my headshots, and I'm looking for a new manager. I'm like, well, I don't rep talent. Why are you emailing me? Right. I, I have sometimes a respond and be like, I don't rep actors. Why are you emailing me? They go, whoa, oh, you don't? Oh, well, well I also write, by the way. And I'm like, Great, oh, God. Uh, what have I done? Well, I get queries. I'm not a manager or an agent. I get queries. Yeah, you know. It's like a shotgun. People are just like, anyway, any, yeah. any, any way, man, anyway. But 50 is a lot because, again, you know, I speak I speak to many managers and uh, usually well, the average is about I, 10 I to 20 more, is, is about average. I talked more openly about queries yeah. than any. Look, it didn't used to be 50, right? That's crazy. I talk more openly about queries than anybody else in town. Mm-hmm. So, and, I've, and I've signed more people off queries than certainly most anybody that I know. Well, a so. lot of writer, a lot of managers I've spoken to haven't signed anybody by queries. You know, the crazy thing is prior to 2020, I had signed one, maybe two people off queries, mm. you know, and, and by the way, neither of them had resulted in anything. But in 2020, I signed this writing team, Nick and Amanda via query. I signed this amazing uh, writer director, um, Jason Park via query. I signed um, this guy, Julian Delandre through a query. And I just signed Sophie Dawson, the headhunter writer through a query. Now, I think in the case of Nick and Amanda, it was also, and, and Julian Delandre, they were both in the blacklist, but Zach had read them on the blacklist and I had read them via the query mm-hmm. or vice versa. I can't remember. Um, but they, that was actually both, they were both kind of similar, but Jason and Sophie were pure, pure query. Hmm. And when's the last, just out of curiosity, when's the last time you went to the Bellevue offices? 
Uh, I gotta pick up my checks off too, baby. Okay. Um, no, uh, you know, actually, actually, they all go to my account now, which is was that was something I had to do uh, when I went up to Canada for a month. Mm. Um, I did go to. I, I had to go check check on my my checks actually, because my production, my infinite money goes. There, oh, so. okay. That's a separate whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I probably go once every two three weeks, make sure they haven't burnt down. I guess. <laughs> Um, I mean, like they're in an office building and all that. Yeah, so, yeah, no. But I haven't, you know, I had a, had a Zoom with a talented writer on Friday. And they're like, I could come in and do it in person. I was like, eh, I'm not there yet. Yeah. I started doing lunches and drinks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, I, you know, I don't know. It, it hasn't happened yet. Um, but like Ian Shore and I, um, uh, Ian's going to be back in town in like three weeks or something. And then, I don't know, maybe we'll start breaking a new script and we'll meet up at the office. Hmm. Probably honestly, that I, that could I could see that being the thing that got me back into the office was getting in a room and breaking store. For me, the point of being in the office because I don't have any kids, and so this is my home office, is the mm-hmm. guest bedroom. Um, but and my wife writes from home. Um, but if I had kids, I'd probably be in the office a lot more. Right, for the obvious reason of trying to separate um, things. But but for me, the office has been about trying to sign people and being impressing them with your office, which sure. is not as much a thing at the moment. Um, and I'm being able to break story with clients. And so that's that's probably what I'll start doing is when Ian gets back into town, we have a new, we have a new, uh, one or two new ideas that we're working on. So I'll probably maybe get in that room and we'll break story together. Well, that's very cool. Um, let's see here. Uh, Vaughn Smith, how does the staffing process work? Pitch takes on the show. Can you get staffed off a feature spec? Okay, first, no, you cannot get staffed on a feature spec. You're not really pitching and take on this show because the show's already written and gone to pilot, mm-hmm. you know? So like, you're not like, Hey, let me tell you how you should reinvent your show. Right. What you're coming in. T- so the process is most likely, most likely you have a manager and then the manager got you an agent. You could have somehow got an agent without a manager. It's certainly possible. Um, but more often than not, you have a manager. I'm talking about like for the low staff writer, your first show that you're staffing on. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about like if you're st- if you've been staffed three or four times, it's a different. It's not a different process, but you already have representation at that point. For someone on, to be staffed on their first show, most likely you got a manager, and the manager got you an agent, or let's just just say you have an agent. I don't. know. It doesn't matter really. Um, then they the the agent or the manager put you up for the show. You meet with they. You will meet with, here's the people who have to sign off on you. The studio, the network, often, all often separate entities. Even if it's like CBS, the studio, CBS, the network, there's different executives at both places. But often it could be like a 20th century, I get a Fox studio, but an ABC network show like mm-hmm. Modern Family was. Uh, the showrunner. Sometimes another non-writing uh, producer, you know, like the director's production company or whatever. Uh, you have to meet all those people. Okay, so you, you get we'll get the script to like at least one or two of those people. Sometimes all four of those different entities. Um, ideally, you've met with at least one or two of those people before. So we have a client um, who's doing a bunch of meetings. Right, well, we have a lot of clients who are meeting with a bunch of people all the time. But like the hope is that eventually those people. Uh, six months from now, three months from now, a year from now, we're staffing a show. And they're like, hey, you remember Ben? You love Ben. You should put Ben for this show. You've already met Ben. You don't need to beat Ben a second time. Um, but, you know, so you have to meet those people. 
anyways, at the end of the day, you meet the showrunner. Sometimes you meet the showrunner, then you meet the studio. More often you meet the studio, then you meet the showrunner. And then a decision is made and, and you get staffed or you don't. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the process. And when you're going in for those meetings, you're not quite pitching your take, but like you might be pitching, you, you might talk about like ideas that you're interested in or like a lot of times what they view the writer as is like, what's your toolkit that you're bringing to the show? You know, what's the toolkit you can bring um, to the show that you're you're working on, you know? So it's less like, let me give you five ideas for an episode. I mean, it's not bad to have those in your back pocket of like, here's a few things that I think would be cool or ideas that I'm excited about. But it's really more about like, what is your insight that no one else in the room has that you can bring to when you're building story and, and, and brainstorming episodes? Right. Uh, and if you're interested in the staffing process, you can check back at some of our other videos. We do have some interviews with uh, showrunners who talk about what they look for and what the process is as well from their perspective. So uh, things that they ask, things that uh, are set of red flags, stuff like that. So you can definitely check that. And we've got some more showrunner interviews. I'm scheduling them as we speak. Well, maybe not right this second, but uh, currently. So if you're interested in hearing from more showrunners, uh, definitely subscribe. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh Jesse Langey says, is it harder for international writers, for example, from Canada to get signed due to visa requirements? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it might be impossible. I don't know. I've never done it. Mm -hmm. And as a Canadian who recently became an American citizen, uh, I'm very sympathetic to it, but I don't even know if it's possible, to be honest with you. I've never tried. Okay. Uh, Let's see. I wish I had better news. I think if you had, I think if you had success in Canada, like you were like a high level writer, mid mid to high level writer on a Canadian show, then you could try to get U.S. representation, which would get you an O-1 visa, which is a visa for extraordinary ability. And then you'd have a visa to work on an American television show. Um, but I've never done it as the answer. It's it's It would be for me, uh, an international writer to get staffed on, a, on a, an American TV show, it would be a hard process. Hmm. Because the visa process takes months. Right, right. And, <laughs> you need to have a visa and then be staffed on the show. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, let's see. Ian Martin says, hi, John. Do you ever use script consultants for notes on client screenplays? Nope. That's me, Bay. Why would I need a script consultant? What else? What, I, what, what, what do I bring to the table if I don't bring my own thoughts and, and insights? Right. That'd be, that'd be crazy. That's like, hi, I'm a plumber. I'm going to hire this outside plumbing consultant. They're going to be doing the plumbing. I, I know I'm a plumber, but like, it's not really my job. <laughs> crazy. That's right. like, that's my job, you know? Right. Uh, that's what I do is my job. And if someone did that, that would be crazy. I'm sure someone does it because there's crazy people out there. Anyone else, anyone can call themselves a manager. And anyone, scare, and anyone scary can call, call themselves a script but consultant. Hey, but hey, I did, right. you know? So like, I can't be too, I never worked in representation before I was a manager. So, you know, but, um, I, I, I don't want to like, but like, yeah, if, if a manager is asking is using script consultant, that's weird to me personally. Right. And that, right. you know, no slam on script consultant. There's some good ones out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, but, uh, but I don't know why a man, I get referred people from script consultant script mm. consultant say, Hey, this is a really talented person. You should read this person. Absolutely. But I don't go to them for notes. I mean, I think I, I think I'm, I think I'm very good at developing. That's my little brag. I will put well, out you've there. You've got a good track record. So yeah. And so I'm like, that's my ad value. That's what I'm taking 10% for. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, amongst other things. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Um, 
Einer von Denen, hopefully I pronounced your name right, Einer. Uh, I second the question about international writers. Any point to have representation in the U.S.? If you want to sell features, features you're fine. You can sell a feature. That won't be a problem. Oh, gotcha. Uh, but TV staffing, because here's the thing with selling a feature mm -hmm. is you are selling something that you own to someone else, mm -hmm. right? It may be slightly complex because you're international, but it can still be done. And then I think you can still get hired to write. Like that's a simple thing, right? TV staffing is, hey, we met you on a Thursday. We want to start the room on a Monday. There's no time for visas or any of that kind of stuff. Right. If you're a feature writer, I think, and I and I have clients, and Jeff has clients who are in Canada and, and stuff like that. You know, staffing is just very move very fast, mm -hmm. and unless you have a visa in hand already, I think it's hard. Again, I haven't done this, so I can't 100% speak to it. But I would imagine it being an obstacle. And I am somewhat familiar with immigration uh, stuff because, you know, I am Canadian. Right, right. Immigrated. So, um, but features, it's not a problem. Features, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see here. Uh, Justin B says, do you manage new writers that haven't achieved any accolades in writing yet if the script is good? Yes, all the time. In fact, that's the most important thing. The script is good. That's all that matters. I don't give a shit about accolades. Uh, Sean C., are short films considered as samples something you would use to take a client on? They're only a sample if you want to be a director. Right. And for me personally, um, Kate and Zach are more, sometimes sign on, take on people who are not um, writer directors. Mm -hmm. For me, if someone's got a short film, I'd rather, I'd rather read their script first and then watch their short film. Gotcha. And if you want to ask questions of Zach, he's going to be on two weeks from now. So definitely come back because uh, we've mm -hmm. got Zach on. Um, Benjamin Feldman says, when is the best time to send a query letter and what should be in it when reaching out to a manager? Uh, well, the query letter thread, as I've mentioned before, just go to that. My pinned tweet, John Zazerny on Twitter, goes to Kevin's website. There's a query letter thread that tells you all about what you want in there. In terms of the right time, I don't know. Don't send it. Don't send it during a national holiday. I get those. That's really weird on like New Year's Day or Christmas right. or like Thanksgiving. That's weird. But other other than that, don't think it matters. You know, personally. Right. I have heard some lit reps say don't send it at really odd hours. Like don't send it at three in the morning, thinking you're just going to be the first one in the inbox because some of them have their alerts on and they'll get woken up. Yeah, I guess that, I, that I don't have my alerts on. That would be insane to yeah. me if I had an alert. If I had an alert for every email I got, I would have it go off 2000 times a day. Oh so. yeah. No, but like, yeah, I would, you know, maybe send it during business hours. Sure. Yeah, or a little weekday. before, a little after maybe, but yeah, just in yeah. the middle of the night, maybe and it's just a suggestion. Sure. But Yeah. I mean, I can't disagree with what Kevin said. Yeah. yeah. Um, Miriam said, would you recommend getting a blacklist score of eight or above before querying? Would you be more keen to read a query script? The author mentions a blacklist score. Um, it still always comes down to the log line for me. Mm -hmm. I would, what I will say, if you got a blacklist score of eight or above, then I'm automatically emailed it as part of not, I mean, emailed your log line mm -hmm. as part of like the weekly blacklist, our readers recommend thing. So I will see it that way. Um, yeah, I guess. But like for me, you'd be like, I got a blacklist seven. But if I look at it and I'm like, I don't really like this log line, it then doesn't matter to me really. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I would say there's no downside. In, uh, there's no downside in it. No. 
As long as it's, yeah, high. Don't say you got a Blacklist 5. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that seems obvious. You wouldn't want to be bragging about something that's not necessarily brag-worthy. Um, but yeah, I don't see any harm in it. But to me, it's not a guarantee that I'll necessarily like, oh my God, I have to read this. Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity, how many scripts are on average on those weekly Blacklist weekly high scorers it varies weirdly for tv mm-hmm. there can sometimes only be one or two which is interesting mm-hmm. i think there there's a lot more now than there used to be so there must be people putting a lot more tv stuff now right there used to be like one or two it's kind of weird for features like six to eight but there are weeks when there's like 20 wow. basically if you have an eight and you're still on the website so like because it, it's also not just that week right if you oh. had an eight and it stays on the website. Sometimes you get free weeks, or you get another. Then, like your uh, script is still on there. So here's something that will make. I I I I, I hesitate to say it because I know it'll make people insane. Shia LaBeouf's screenplay, minor modifications, is still on there after like 26 weeks or 27 weeks. Wow. I don't know if he paid for like a light, like a year long <laughs> thing because it got a good. It got good reviews. Yeah, right, yeah. got like an eight. And I don't know how it works with the blacklist. I think they give you like free like reviews or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's still on there at the bottom. It's been on there for like 26 weeks or 28 weeks. Right. Wow. Which to me is like weird. And I don't know what the deal is. He must, that means that he, someone is still paying for it every week to be on there. I don't know why or what point they're trying to arrive at. Right. Um, but like, it doesn't matter. Like, by the way, that also speaks to the fact that it's still on there indicates that no one's done anything with it or no one has any interest in, in taking it off of there. I don't know what means but but yeah so the reason the list sometimes can be longer like i remember there's this one script like american patriot or something and it had been on there for like 20 weeks or something i don't know it it got a good review but then the person must have kept paying or they got free or whatever i don't know but so things are on there so it's not just all like i would say the first 50 percent of it has probably been on there for one week Hmm. and the other 50 percent is like two or three weeks and then then there's like 10 percent is like been on there for 20 weeks or something okay but for me like the things that have been on there for like more than two or three weeks, I'm not paying attention to because I've seen them so many times that if I wanted to engage on them, I would have engaged on them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so we've gone in 90 minutes, but we still have a bunch of questions going on. Do you? That's have... fine. I got. I'm I will good. keep rolling then. Uh, Benjamin Feldman uh, says, "If a manager's on the West Coast and you live on the East Coast, does that distance matter to a manager?" Not me. I got a bunch of East Coast clients. Gotcha. Yeah, so, and as you said, as long it's as they're willing to, to come out. Smart about our scheduling. Yeah. I said I was going to call Chris Devlin. Uh, it was in New York. I'm like, I had like, a question for him at like I don't know, seven o'clock at night. And I was like, and then I was like, oh shit, it's ten o'clock at night. <laughs> so yeah, other than that, it doesn't really matter. So then you called Ian because it was still mid morning. <laughs> Ian still like. I remember Ian was starting a movie. I got this text from him. He's like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, are you just starting this movie? He's like, no, it's like we. J- I'm like, oh, are you done watching this movie? And he's like, oh no, I just started it. It was like midnight. I was like, what the hell? And then at least it's like, oh, it's nine a.m. for nine p.m. for <laughs> right, like, right. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Uh, KP only asked, are rec- any recommendations on film programs for non-traditional students? I don't know what non-traditional. I don't know what non-traditional student means, and. I don't know. No, film school matters or doesn't matter depending on your... I wouldn't go to film school if it's going to leave you in significant debt, Mm. is my thing. I think I went to film school. I was lucky enough to have my family um, uh, support me so it didn't leave me in debt. 
which is a huge luxury that most people do not have. Um, so it was great. Look, I like going to film school. It was great, but it didn't guarantee me a job or anything. Um, and I didn't have to have gone to film school. And I have a lot of friends who didn't go to film school out here who were successful, mm -hmm. you know? Um, my buddy Will Bell, who wrote Gang Squad and Aquaman and, and Justice League, the Zack Snyder cut or whatever, he uh, never went to film school, you know? He used to be a cop, you know? Mm -hmm. um, he went to, like, San Diego State, I think, um, for creative writing, I think. I can't remember. Um, anyways, but my point being that he didn't go to some fancy film program. So I would only go to a film program uh, if it made sense to you on a financial level um, and if you felt you could gain something from it. So, yeah, that'd be my advice. Yeah. Uh, I love this live episode energy. Thanks again for everything you both do for Emerging Writers, said Ash Laser. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for participating, Ash. Thank you, Ash. I appreciate all your positive comments on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, Lucas Kendall, is it weird for a manager? Uh, hey, Lucas. Uh, is it weird for a manager to often take co-writing credit with clients? Yes. That is weird. I mean, I have done it. Uh, when did I do it? Gosh. Did it on a one script that Ian Shore and I uh, did together that we didn't sell. Sad. Um, but that was because, um, long story, I like had written, I had written a screenplay and Ian rewrote the screenplay. So oh, that's okay. the only time that ever happened. Um, but uh, yeah, producers will do it. By the way, I don't know what managers are doing it. That's 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 fucking weird that's really fucking weird but producers will occasionally do it to people i know it happened to ian that a producer's like by the way i feel like i deserve story credit which is bullshit to me because that's your fucking job so um i have never taken story credit that's not true i've almost never taken story credit um and when i have there has been a very good reason for it which usually involved me writing a screenplay that was mm -hmm. rewritten and again, I don't really write screenplays anymore. So, but this is some some things that I did early in my career that were good ideas or whatever. So, right. um, I think if the right situation presented itself, it would make sense. But it's certainly something that I don't do very often, and that I only do when I have a, a strong. There's a very strong reason behind it, right. generally involving either having written the original tree, like for example, on Eli, that actually was my original idea, and originally Paramount said, "Well, John should have story credit." Um, and I turned it down. I actually declined it because I felt that that was my job as a producer was to um, was to was to do that, you know, was to brought the original the original idea of calling it Eli and having it be about a boy who is an autoimmune disorder in a haunted house. That was my idea, actually, which, you know, predated David Chaturla coming and David brought so much more to it, you know. And so that just felt like the right thing to me to do. Um, so, yeah, I've kind of veered away from it often. Um, unless it involved a significant amount of work that was that was somehow predates the writer or something like that. Right. Um, but yeah, be wary of people who do that. Yeah, yeah. It's like how Elvis Presley used to get co-writing credit on all the songs that he did, even though he never actually wrote them. <laughs> right. Uh, let's see here. Noah Keeling asks, do you represent writers who also act? Any advice for said writers, actors on balancing the two? I do. I do represent those people. Um, well, I mean, you kind of have to choose, like we have a client right now um, who are trying to get staffed and we got her an agent um, and we're, you know, I think the conversation we had with her was, look, we know you're acting, you're busy acting, but if we get you a job on a TV show, we need you to be 100% committed to working on that TV show as, as a writer, you know, when you're on that show. 
And look, when you're off that show, if you're like, I want to take three months and do some acting, then that's great. But you really, it's so hard to get people people's career going as a writer that trying to do, and it's hard to get a career going as an actor. But I think you really have to be like, okay, if an opportunity comes, I have to embrace that opportunity as a writer or whatever. You know, because for us, like we have a client who's half in, it's like we're doing all this effort, but are they, you know, are they are they going to kind of walk away from it? And then the effort has been in, in, you know, for no particular reason. So in vain. So, yeah, I think I think I think it's a little trickier for you to get reps sometimes because they want to make sure we're 100 percent committed to you as a writer. Are you 100 percent committed to you as a writer? Now, does this client also have representation as an actor? Yeah, she's a she's a decently prominent actress. Yeah. So that's the thing. She's not, a, she's not a huge, like above, she's sure. not a top of show star, but she works very consistently. Right. And that's the thing I think a lot of writer actors don't think about necessarily who are newer to the business, that you would have to have separate representation. Like you won't send them out for auditions and things like that. Just like their talent agent wouldn't send them out on Sometimes staffing. Sometimes it gets weird. And I think those actor writers, not my client, actor writers are like, oh no, my, my agent for my acting, my manager for my acting is also my manager for my rig. And I'm like, okay, do they know what they're doing? But sure. Right. Yeah. Cause they're different sets of contacts or different processes and stuff like that. But in my opinion, yeah. 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 Um, let's see here. Uh, Sarit Zadok says this winter, I got bored and wrote eight out of the 10 episodes for my adventure thriller show. Would this turn reps off because they say, write Only the pilot. I mean, the pilot's good. The pilot's good. I mean, I don't know your eight to 10 episodes. I don't know what, the other seven episodes, I don't know what they're going to do with those, you know? I mean, I heard of it working once on something, but generally it's like, because here's the thing, if you sold the show, they would probably have a bunch of notes on the pilot that would affect the later episodes, you know? Well, yeah. The producers would have notes, the, you know, maybe they'd pair you with a showrunner writer, the well, studio especially if would have first notes, timer, yeah. the network would have notes, oh. so it was probably more of a writing exercise than anything. Yeah, and like you said, bringing a showrunner in for a, a, a newer writer, if it's a first-time writer, then they would totally, t- you know, they may take some ideas out of the 7 to 10, but they would you would hire the staff to write the other episodes. They wouldn't ever get used as is. Generally, yeah. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say never, but I mean, it's oh, It's rare. Statistical, statistically almost impossible. Um, let's see here. So, yeah, I, and w- but would that turn you off if someone said, I wrote 8 out of 10, or would you just say, tell them to just say, here's my pilot? I would tell them just to say, here's my pilot. Yeah. Because uh, it sounds like you're not a serious person because that's not what serious people do. Right. Two episodes, maybe. But, like, right. eight? Like, why didn't you just write a different pilot? Right. And that's not to say that you can't use the the some of the ideas from the other seven to ten. Say, I, I roll a pilot, and then I have, here's some ideas for additional episodes. Without sure. Actually, yeah. Uh, Short Kill 72 says, Hey, John, appreciate your music post on Twitter. Uh, what's something new you've picked up and started listening to? <laughs> I mean, I'm listening to that Olivia Rodrigo album because uh, it's pretty good. Because I like that driver's license song. And also, it's so huge. I was actually, I had dinner with a friend on Thursday night and he was like my age. He's like, oh, music's terrible now. And I was like, I love paying attention to new music, mm-hmm. like whether it's BTS, Olivia Rodrigo or, or whoever, um, Billie Eilish, because I want to be aware of what's going on in the culture. And I don't listen to, I don't love everything, but like, for example, being aware of K-pop and being into K-pop, that resulted in me having a K-pop project over at Fox now, you know, that my wife wrote. So, you know, I want to be familiar with, I, I was catching Olivia Rodrigo 
one of my clients um, uh, for a horror movie that they're working because I've heard that she wants to do kind of dark, challenging roles, actually a little different from kind of the Disney stuff that she's known for, you know? So, yeah. So, like, I think whatever, that's what I, I, was, I was listening to before I went on here. I was listening to the Broken Social Scene, not that that's new. I was listening to some Bruce Springsteen bootlegs. Um, yesterday, I was listening to Chic um, and some of the stuff they were working on. Just got Daft Punk's Random Excess Memories on vinyl. So, I was listening to that yesterday. So, um, that, I, yeah, that's, I don't think I've, I, I, there's nothing super new that I'm listening to right now other than Olivia's um, album, which is pretty good, honestly. Her lyrics are really good. They're really, I actually was trying to figure out a tweet to write about the specificity of of Olivia's lyrics, but I thought it might come off kind of creepy. Um, But but there's the specificity in her lyrics is really astonishing and and to be learned from. Uh, Let's see. Todd Klinger asks, when an email is sent to a rep and the address is info at... Who is the first person to read it? Should you put the rep's name in the subject line? I tackled this a little in a query email. Like the info ad is, is generally a general mailbox. Hmm. Normally in a normal company, the lowest ranking person, so the receptionist or the assistant is the person who gets it. Uh, at Bellevue, it's me, funnily enough. I, I just like it that way. Um, that way I can sort through the queries and stuff like that. Um, but generally, but my recommendation to you would be to look at the entire client list for any company that has the info thing and be like, which manager am I the right fit for? Which person do I think? So like sometimes if a query comes into Zach and it's really specific for Zach, like, hi, Zach, I love this about one of your clients. And I thought you said this funny thing on Twitter. I'll just forward it to Zach so he can deal with it. If he can respond or not respond. And sometimes he does. Same thing with Jeff or Kate, right? So if it's directed, hi, Kate, I don't send every hi, Kate one to Kate because if it looks like it was garbage or it has like a, an attachment in it or whatever. But generally, if it's a, if it's specifically to hi, Kate, hi, Zach, hi, Jeff, and it seems like it's a, a fit for them, then I will forward it their way. Yeah. So, in- so I would look at the client list and be like, who is the person that I think I'm the, I'm the best fit for? I talk about this in my queer letter thread because I say, Look, even if it doesn't go to that person, what it indicates is that you spent time thinking about, you did some research on the company, and that sounds like you're treating the you're treating things, you're acting about your your writing career like in a professional sense, and that is a good thing for a client to be doing. Right. It's to be thinking not just I'm a writer, but like my my how do I approach this in a professional sense? Right, which is huge. It's huge. Yeah. Um, Jim Worst says, "Is a is a blacklist seven worth mentioning?" Sure. You can mention it, whether a responder, whether, you know, whether, whether it's for me, it's still going to be about the log line, but yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Fun guy 345 says, what should young writers post or avoid posting on Twitter? Uh, I think I look, I try to veer on the side of positivity mm-hmm. um, and, and being uplifting and encouraging people. So I would say that I, I, you know, you don't need to be like, I saw this, I saw quiet, please too. It sucks at Beck and Woods. Why are you guys involved in crap? Like, it's not a good look. It makes people feel bad. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I, I try to be uplifting and positive. You know, the same way that you would be in person, right? Um, that would just simply be it. Look, if there, there are movies I don't like, there are TV shows I don't like, I just don't post about them because what's the upside in bringing negativity into the world, you know? Right. Look, that's very different. I think people are like, well, who are gatekeeping? And like, we got to call out bad actors. 
like that's very different saying bohemian rhapsody is a piece of shit which i don't think it is by the way and then saying brian singer acts like a piece of shit is very different things i think brian singer acts like a piece of shit and is exploitive and all these kind of awful things and i'll say that openly um you know if someone was you know ask me on twitter that's what i would say but i'm not going to drag the movies he's directed necessarily for that reason um so i think you should feel to call out bad actors absolutely um on their personal behavior but in terms of actual material i mean look if you are watching something and you think it's it's highly offensive in the way that it acts like you know i don't know you're watching this thing and you're like wow there's a lot of sexism in this thing or that then then that's perfectly fine but on a completely relative qualitative judgment scale like i just thought this was bad or it was boring that i don't think you necessarily need to do you know right i, I hope that difference is kind of clear in between you know the the judgment of something as being good or bad and the judgment of something as being offensive you know or or mm-hmm. being abusive right or someone being abusive right right um Let's see here. Uh, KP only says non-traditional. I mean older. I think KP is referring to when they say any recommendations on film programs for non-traditional students. I think they were talking. Now they're clarifying. I meant older. I don't know. Then yeah. I mean, look. I know that the UCLA. If you're located in LA, or I think you can actually do it online. I know that people talk very highly of the UCLA. Um, was it the UCLA extension, extension program? program? Hmm. Yeah, and I think you can like learn to write screenplays from that. Um, and I think you can do it online now. I don't know. So UCLA extension, I guess, would be my recommendation. And USC also Although has I've a summer as a summer program. <laughs> USC does too for film. So. And I think if you're not located in LA, you can do it online. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's. I don't. I, I think now you certainly can. Right. 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 Uh, Ian Martin, I live in the UK, but I've always written for the American market. Do you think it would be better to try and build a career over here before tackling America? Um. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Hmm. Here's what I would say. You could have no success in America, in a UK, sell a screenplay in America and become a big deal really quickly, you know, or you could gain a reputation in the UK and that reputation would lead to opportunities in America, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So it's really whoever you find, being response, whichever industry you find being responsive to your material. Mm-hmm. I mean, often it's, it seems I'm trying to think of a UK writer that ha- only had American success and never had any UK success. And I can't really think of anyone. Like I know Peter Morgan was very successful before he started, you know, really blowing up in the U S and, and selling specs and things like that. Um, I'm sure there is someone. I just don't know them off the top of my head. So it seems like it's more more often people have success in the UK, and then that success leads to American success. Mm. Uh, Todd Klinger says, still not into road movie scripts, which you already covered. You're still not into road movie scripts. Um, Let's see. Uh, Scott Jeschke says, does it make sense to query reps with a short film if you're a writer-director? Thanks, John and Kevin. Uh, yeah, we spoke about this a little yeah. earlier. I, I what I, I would still query people with the feature length ex- extension of your short film if there is one. Hmm. For me, it's all about reading that first feature screenplay. Um, but my colleagues Kate and Zach 
might feel differently in terms of they would be interested in your short film independent of a feature script or not. I know that's just, for me, I need to know that you can write a feature. People also ask me, like, what about feature, what about short film scripts? I'm like, I don't want to read short film scripts. I can't do anything with them. I can't sell them. I can't use them as samples. You know, it's features or, or nothing, you know, if you want to be a, a direct, a feature director, right. you know? Right. So for me, like, so like Jason Park, who I signed, um, he had sent me his, he'd reached out about his script transplant. I read it. I thought it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Then he's like, by the way, I'm a writer director. Here's my short film, BJ's mobile gift shop, which was very different, but amazing. Gone to Sundance this year. You know, I was like, wow. Like not only does he have amazing writing, script he also has like an amazing short film you know um so that was great and i was like okay you're a director 100 i will i see this you know but it started for me with the feature script right right and you mentioned zach so scott if you're around in a couple weeks i think the 19th zach will be on and you can ask him that question yeah so, zach is probably more open to short films than i am uh megan g you've mentioned the importance of having one good script is there ever a case where you'd need a couple of scripts before signing someone if so why it hasn't happened, but I'm the exception. Like, I think my colleague, not my colleague at Bellevue, but my fellow manager, Jared Murray, I think he prefers two scripts. Um, there's other people out there who, who are like, they want to see that you can do it consistently. Right. For me, if you can do it once, you can do it again. Yeah. But there are other people who want to read other material. So um, for me, not the case. For others, yes, they want. They feel like they want to make sure it wasn't lightning in a bottle and that you can deliver consistently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack Cross, can you share with us any of your new projects you're excited about? Probably not. <laughs> I'm trying to think if I can like, well, I mean, I can tell you about the things that I have in development that have been announced. So like we have this K-pop project hmm. over 20th, formerly Fox, with Scooter Braun producing, um, Epic Magazine producing, my wife Elise wrote the script, Benson Lee's directing. That's really exciting. Um, I'm hoping that's going to do something um what else what else what else um yeah that's the only one i I, that's i can't i can't talk about this other stuff now i can only talk about stuff that's been announced right and i don't want to be like you're like oh there's some really exciting stuff coming up you know i don't want to do that this business involves a lot of um things that you can't speak about until they're public information Mm -hmm. so um i try to be respectful of that uh, Bruce Tedesco asks to a manager is a writer's ability to pound out a script quickly a feature or a bug is that good or bad either yeah I mean it depends on either. the script right it just, it just, it's, I'd rather have a client that wrote two great scripts a year than a client that wrote six mediocre ones mm. right um, and you actually probably rather have a client who wrote one great script a year than 800 I was gonna say, yeah. and i mean look i i find when people brag about being able to write something quickly uh i find it not great because generally they think that quantity over quality hmm. and like if it's good it's good if you can write amazing script really fast and great but like generally i have not seen that to, like ian shore writes pretty fast but still i think the fastest we've ever turned around a script has been six months hmm. You know, from like the moment of the idea hitting us sure. to like being in a situation where like, okay, we can take it out. Right. Not a first draft or something like that. Yeah. No, like the first moment we, idea that we had and then, you know, yeah, okay, we're taking this out. That's right. the fastest we've ever turned anything around. Yeah. 
Uh, I hate Monday says, I love reading your tweets, John. How closely do you develop new projects with clients? Do you want writers to bring a concept log line and you develop together from there? Yeah, generally, um, more often than not, my clients, I ask them to send me like uh, you know, three, four, five ideas on a P in a PDF more, sometimes more. And then we go through it and I'm like, Hey, like, here's why I didn't like any of these, you know? Um, or, Hey, I like this one. Let's talk about this one some more, you know? So yeah, I, I work pretty, most of my clients, I work pretty intimately with them going through beat by beat. And it can get frustrating sometimes when I blow up ideas for months, you know, like they bring me like a sheet of ideas, you know, once every two, three weeks, or I keep blowing them up, but I'd rather, have them land on a great idea that I know I can sell and we can get some traction in their career with than have them spend those three months writing a script that after I get the first draft, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't think I could sell this, you know? Right. I, I just rather do that. And that's frustrating to some people. For some people, writing is only writing when you're actually sitting down and writing a first draft of something. But I think for real professionals, generally writing is is not just writing like dialogue and, and scripts it's thinking about what am i going to write and how does it push my career forward and where is it where is it going mm -hmm. you know and where does my career land after this this screenplay you know um film magician says all things being the same would you rather be pitched or queried about a genre movie or something lower budget and character driven Probably a genre movie. It's truth. Okay. But I mean, like, if, if the, the you know, but genre movies tend to be lower budget. So I'm like, I'm trying to imagine like lower budget than a genre movie, but okay. Uh, I mean, look, it's good. I'd rather be, I mean, I'd rather be pitched something good. But if you're asking me, like, there's like, like two hands and one's got a genre movie, one's got a character, a low budget indie character drama. And I'm like, I'm probably going to go with a genre movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Very few people out there like, God, I'm really looking for half a million dollar character drama movies. Like, because nobody makes any money on them, right? Think about it, right? If you make a movie for half a million dollars, it's an indie drama. Everyone's going to get paid scale for it, you know? And like, look, it's a great movie for making Moonlight. That's amazing, right? But for every Moonlight, there's like 99 other movies that unfortunately don't get any distribution. Right, right. Uh, Sarah Tuft, thank you, John. I'm a playwright and on Twitter sometimes call out theater for its elitism with wit and intended with other playwrights, but still, thank you for wise counsel. Um, Miriam, how official does a query language need to sound? Can you open a query with like, hi, John, or make it more official, like dear Mr. Last name, etc.? I think hi, John's fine, or dear John, yeah. or yeah. hey, John. Right. Maybe not hey. I think hi or dear is fine. Um, I don't think it to be hi, Mr. Zazerny. Right. Um, Anthony McBride, do you sign big budget movie writers? All the time. Yeah. Um, David F. Schwartz, if a writer has interest from creative development execs on a script, is it good or bad form to include that information in a query to management companies? Definitely good. Although if you have interest from those people and you're already working with them, then they could probably reach out to managers that they know. Yeah. And that'll be a lot, that'll get a lot better, faster response. Right. If you're like, hey, I'm developing a script with Andrew Childs at Vertigo. Mm -hmm. uh, I love Andrew. So I'd be like, oh, that's amazing. Um, by the way, first I'll check the information. Yeah. Right? Don't lie about it. Lot, 
if it's a lie, then I'm like, mm, yeah. never talking to you. You're blocked. Right. Um, but if it's the truth, uh, I'm going to take it very seriously. But it'd be even easier if Andrew Childs reaches out and says, hey, man, I read the script. It's great. I'm really with this guy. You should pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. That's going to go to the top of my of my list. Right. And and don't exaggerate severely of the, this individual's interest. I can tell bullshit. People are always like, yeah, they're reading my script over Overbrook. I'm like, oh, you mean you sent a query letter in? Right. Oh, okay. Right. And when I said CIA once, uh, somebody had sent in a, a, a query and it was, they said, Paramount said they would make it if we could get Tom Cruise attached. One, if you can get Tom Cruise attached, they're going to make it anyway. And two, if that were true, that they would call and submit to Tom that. Cruise, right? So this, this, I have, a, I have a new song, and 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 you know, they said they'd release it if I could get Taylor Swift to sing on it right. with me. So can we go get Taylor Swift? Let's get <laughs> on this, right? Well, and it was actually they said Tom Paramount would do it if Tom Cruise was attached. He has a deal at Paramount, so they would just call Tom directly. They wouldn't go through. It was some agent. assistant messing with them, being like, "Yeah, we'll read if Tom Cruise." Is right? No, exactly. The person was like, "Oh my god, I'm gonna leave!" <laughs> right? It's all happening. Right. So don't do that. Don't do that. It's like Bowfinger or something. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. What is your favorite cocktail or adult beverage? Have a great weekend. Thank you both very much, Ash. Well, thank you. Ash. I'd say my my gin. I'm a gin guy, and I'd say gin and tonic is my uh it's my it's a little boring but it's probably my my uh my, my drink of choice so um yeah gin drinks uh I, a friend recommended the bee's knees recently so i had one of those and that was quite tasty sometimes i'll obviously make a martini a gin martini um yeah sometimes i'll just sip it i mean not very often but sometimes um <laughs> but uh yeah that I'm, I'm i'm a gin guy but gin and tonic's kind of the the the, the go-to one and my favorite gin is east london liquor company which is this amazing uh gin as you might imagine it's from east london um a little hard to get out here but really really excellent but i had some friends uh recommend some great gins to me recently um so i've been trying some i have too many gins now uh, if that is such a thing <laughs> i don't think that's such a thing but uh let's see here um Jack Cross, are there any taboo topics that are subjects to avoid writing uh, for feature or TV? I mean, I'll tell you, generally politics. Mm, yeah. Politics, people are not really looking to do anything political recently. Mm-hmm. It just feels like, you know, it just, look, if you had a really amazing insight and way into it, I think so. But like, people feel like nobody wants, we're in such a polarized time right now that I think, you know, it's hard for people to do that stuff, you know? Um, and, 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 and they just don't want to make it, you know, I think you'd have to really find a way to like, it just ends up being pedantic more often than not when people write a political script, it's like evil Trump, evil bad, you know, which is all true, but like, you know, yeah. and then if you written a political script and you know, it's like, okay, well then what are we, we're going to get you more political scripts. There's just not a lot of them out there. So it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. <coughs> um, Greg Hare, I very much appreciate your honesty, John. Love following you on Twitter. Um, Ian Martin, this has been amazing. Thank you, John and Kevin. Well, thank you, Ian. Uh, and film, film Magician, are you still taking unsolicited queries, John? All day, every day. All day, every day. All day. Should we, should we wrap it up? See if yeah. there's any questions? Yeah, any, any last questions? Get them in. You got your, mo- your, your uh, moment. And while we're waiting for the last final questions, if there are any, be sure to watch. Uh, Infinite, June 10th, 
I don't know what time. Maybe I'm assuming 12.01. My wife was asking me this, like, when it's going to launch. Yeah. I don't know. The answer is I do not know. Yeah. So, uh, but you know what? Whenever you watch it, I'm happy that you watch it. I, I hope you enjoy it. We worked really hard on it. Um, you know, it all comes from a, an idea. It came from Eric Mykrantz's book and then Rafi Crone mm -hmm. bringing it to me and Ian and then Ian writing an amazing script and then Lorenzo Bonaventure and Mark Roddy at Paramount believing in it and getting it to Antoine Fuqua. Uh, and then getting, you know, uh, getting Mark on board. So, you know, I mean, look, you know, every, it's hard to make a movie, period. Every time a movie gets made, it's a miracle. When a good movie gets made, it's a miracle. I think the thing to remember and the thing why I'm always with positivity on, on the internet is that, um, you know, no one sets out, you know, it's, it's very hard. It's a lot, it, you know, a lot, a lot of things have to go right. And so, that that that's maybe you know you always want the best version of something uh out there um and so just know that everyone re worked really hard um to make something out there to get something up on the screen right all right last couple megan g says this was so helpful thank you both for your time thank you megan uh this was awesome thank you both so much wonka vader wonka vader 72 um Here's a question, Ash Laser. Is there a genre story type that you feel the market has space for right now? Uh, horror thriller. Yeah, there's always, right? I mean, I, yeah, that's kind of the basic. Translates well, goodbye. And it's one that's what the Funko Pop is, and that's, yeah. that's John McClane. I was going to end uh, on that, but yeah, you got... Yeah, oh, sorry. I no, 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 all good. Then, no, all good. I, so, I screwed up. That's the last question. Yeah, that was going to be the so last sorry, question. sorry, Kevin. I was like, oh, maybe Kevin didn't notice that. No, I did. Well, we'll pretend I didn't say that. Pretend I didn't say it. We've got to wrap it up, Kevin. <laughs> okay, so I Hate Monday says, which Funko Pop is on your desk? All right. John McClane. John McClane. As ever, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that Die Hard is my favorite movie, or one of yep. actually it's not my favorite movie, but one of my favorite movies, and also something I go back to a lot as a um, reference point for structure, character, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, yeah, got that there as a little reminder of uh, of one of the great movies of all time. So. Yeah. Or if you've so, yeah. heard any of our podcasts together, you talk about you've talked about it more than once. All the time. Is the time. Die Hard a Christmas movie, John? Oh no, we already had that. We, <laughs> we already did. had that that whole thing. We did. I, I I have I used to have back when we could go to movie theaters. Rest in peace, ArcLight. It seems like um, we used to go to ArcLight every year and, and watch Die Hard with a bunch of my friends. Every it was a Christmas tradition. Mm. So I'll say that much. I'll say that much. So now you have to find a different venue to watch. I'm hopeful that by the time December rolls around, that the Arclight Hollywood, whether it'll be the AMC Hollywood or something, right. will be reopened. Um, just because it, if you've ever been to the Arclight Hollywood, it's custom designed to be a movie theater and it's very, must be like, must cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So I have a hard time seeing them converted to condos. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, so I'm hopeful that it'll be open by the time December rolls around. Yeah, let's hope. Let's hope. Um, there is actually one more valuable question oscar moreno says would genre scripts with political undertones like get out or district nine be more palatable than scripts that deal with politics in a more straightforward manner absolutely i mean yeah. like when i say politics what i mean is American, republicans versus yeah, democrats yeah. like you saw even with the hunt like and that was before january 6th that was before all the complete insanity mm -hmm. um how that got turned into a political football and got tossed around the release dates you know yeah um so um yeah, I mean, like, I don't count. I don't. I don't think of Get Out as a political movie necessarily, although it, do, it does deal with stuff. But 
I think if I would call that more social issues, I actually would say social issue genre movies are the hot genre right now. So mm. promising young woman, get out material like that. If you can deal with social issues, I wouldn't, when I think, when I say politics, what I mean is Republicans and Democrats. That's what yeah. I really, and I mean like doing a movie specifically about like, elections, yeah. Ides of March, you know, um, uh, gosh, what was that Kate Blanchett? Not Kate Blanchett, Jessica Chastain movie. Oh yeah. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Sloan, yeah, you know, yeah. Miss Sloan. Movies like that. Those are, they got made, but you know, they didn't do necessarily box office wise as much as people maybe necessarily had hoped. And that was even in a less politicized yeah. moment than we are currently. Yeah. So I would say things to do with that. But I would say social <coughs> issues stuff, especially social issues, genre movies. Great time for those yeah. right now. Yeah. Great time for those. And now we're going to end on a different one. Michael Boke says, where's the Hans Gruber Funko Pop? Do they have that? I don't know. I guess I got to get it. I, did they yeah. make one? I don't, I don't even know. know. We'll have to find one. I wasn't, I'm not a big Funko Pop person. I don't yeah. have all, I don't do that stuff. So uh, I feel like if I like got into them, it'd be kind of like my vinyl collecting. As my wife, as my wife has told me, not every single album that you like, you have to own a vinyl, vinyl copy of them. Um, which is true. So I feel like that that'd be the same. I, if I if I started getting into Funko Pop collecting, I just feel like it would never end. Right. Never end. I got I got to, if I only have one. If I only have a John, I feel like I got one, and like that's that's where it was, and that's my one Funko Pop. It's like a but you start getting into a collection, then like now you got two, nigga, three. Well, mm-hmm. what's the difference between three and five? You know, just keep going. <laughs> it's a slippery slope, my friend. I believe so. Slippery slope. Um, so let's wrap it up. Thank you, John, again, as always. If you don't follow John on Twitter, I'm sure most of you do, but if you don't, it's at John Zalzerny. Um, it's always great to have you on, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Real pleasure. Uh, and thank you all for watching and listening, spending part of your day with us. We'll see you next Saturday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern for another Q&A with John's partner in crimes, screenwriter Ian Shore, and we'll have more chat about uh, Infinite after it's actually come out. So be sure to watch Infinite June 10th. Have a great weekend, everyone. We will see you next time.